from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, the SiriusXM Business Radio Studio, looking out on DeLocus Walk on a gorgeous March morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning at the moment with my buddies and collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, professors both in the Department of Statistics. Good morning, guys. Good morning. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Eric Bradley was our fourth, our fourth co-host and collaborator. Eric is away at the moment, but we'll supposedly, theoretically, We're expecting him to return. Expecting him to return out, yeah. later today. You can join the conversation. You want to jump in here? One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Matt Johnson, our longtime producer, three years of putting up with this crew. Not mm. quite three, but we're close. No, we're over three. Early March. Early March was the anniversary. Is it, and we're, we're wow. cleared. Yeah, we're cleared. The three know, you know, I'm good with numbers, but I can't count to three. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, as 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 old age has crept up on me, like I'm starting to lose count of a whole lot of things. What so, else? Time flies when you're on him. Time He's flies baby for our public out or, there. Or a better spin. Time flies when you're having fun. That's gentlemen. right. One time of those flies. Right? What what numbers are you worried about losing track of, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> Anniversaries, oh, birthdays, oh, yeah. you know, all the usual stuff. Those are important numbers. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, you guys have some numbers. You can also give us an email. Email is businessradio at com. Businessradio at com. You can do that during the show. We actually pick up email during the show. Or if you're listening one of the times we're replayed. We're replayed five times over the next week. And uh, it's a great way to reach out to us if you're catching one of those tape delayed broadcasts. We even call it broadcast, probably not. There's a, probably a technical term that is more appropriate than broadcast. This is narrow cast or digitally cast or something. Right. I'm not sure. At any rate, Wharton Munbell, next two hours. Open lines this half hour, guys. What has caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, I know you're not delighted to talk about this. Oh, we'll here we go. Brief. World Baseball. World Baseball Classic. No, I man, I, I, no, no, I, I, I've been watching more. I mean, no, your enthusiasm last week was infectious. Okay. I've sat down. I've watched a little bit of uh, high-quality uh, baseball. Yeah. And you know what I like about it? This is not going to be a particularly analytical analysis. Um, analytical analysis. <laughs> it's not going to be We're particularly analytical. this time in the morning. Oh, my goodness. This is not a good time for me. But anyway, um, no, I mean... It, is is that the amount of swagger and sort of fun that these players are having? Oh, really? They're hitting home runs and they're celebrating halfway to first base. Well, yeah, you know, they're a... throwing their bats. They're like, you know, pumping their chest, all this stuff. And actually, is that okay? Well, no, it's not okay. It's not okay in MLB. It's not okay in MLB, and I'm kind of wondering why. Like, why are we such stodgy? I mean, this uh, j- this is the you, s- surprising to you that baseball well, is stodgy. No, oh, no, but I mean, football. Wait, wait a second, football stodgy too. I mean, this is this is the same as like an end zone cell, uh, like a touchdown. Dancing in the end zone, and it's yeah, okay. and, and and at least in the NFL, they get penalized for it. No, I mean, not they compared, do. Well, that's not, because it got overboard. I mean, they had these whole dances. It never got overboard. That's why is that overboard? Okay, why, 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 why? Can't yeah. you just pull a sharpie out of your sock and sign sign a ball? What but is remember, the when who's, 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 who's people first affected? started doing that, 
Yeah. There were lots of there was lots of resistance. Oh, there was stodginess. There's pushback to the home and run like trots too. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm a, just saying, if North... it's against your team, then you're like, oh, what a jerk. But if it's for your team, you're like, wow, that guy's really do enthusiastic. That, do you remember that goofy movie from the '90s called Basketball? Basketball, yeah. <laughs> Trey Parker, Matt Stone. That's, that's right. a great movie. Go- wow, I, mean, go- I feel out of my league. Basketball. Why, why not unbelievable. Well, they, how do you not know about foretold, this? Yeah. It foretold yes. some of the craziness that we yeah. see now with celebration. But I am that's with right. Shane on this point. I think that it, sports, fundamentally, we we can't forget it is entertainment. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, unlike, <laughs> un, unlike like a tackle to the head, nobody's being harmed by this, right? right? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, so, uh, so, uh, so what are the arguments against like, it? Like vague sensibility, you know, our sensibilities are being harmed. The sensitivity. What are the arguments against the... it? I know in baseball, the argument against it is tradition. What is the argument in football? I There's think it's the same thing. A yeah. respect, uh, like it, like it's it's seen as disrespectful, unsportsmanlike. Yeah, but 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 yeah, I I mean. Again, I, I just I don't right. I don't I don't see it. Okay, so anyway, baseball. So here, yes. I'll tell you, it was I, just fun I did to notice. Watch. I did notice. I can understand Puerto Rico making the finals, Japan making the finals. What I don't understand is the Netherlands. And Netherlands the has a lot of property <laughs> in the Caribbean, my friend. <laughs> yeah, 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 like it's, it's all Netherlands history. Antilles. It's all like it's, you know, uh, Curacao, like, it's Aruba, yeah. <laughs> and they're all and they're tremendous. Listen, they had yeah. they had now guards. Now you they, get it, right? Is, okay, there isn't there. I think there was one person who was actually born in Holland proper. On the team, okay, this makes so and much the Israel more sense. team no, also you. had one one. And now one I understand world history a little bit better and, and colonialism. That's, yeah. that's good. Okay, yeah. got it. Interesting though, they they do have. We're uh, here to inform it. Okay. They do that. have. They still have connections to their old colonial power. They have not severed them completely. Uh, you mean the countries? Yes, the they, countries like themselves. the Netherlands is in charge of the defense of Curacao. Well, the Netherlands that's used probably to be, a good move. Really? Well, yeah, well, yeah, well, well in case of invasion. Okay. I mean, in a fun fact, I think the U.S. is in charge of the defense of Puerto Rico. Oh, they really more, haven't severed that no, connection Puerto, Puerto either. Puerto Rico is, uh, I mean, they are, they are, they have American passport holders. Yeah, but they're not, they have no, I mean, this is <laughs> this is getting a far afield, I mean, but it's not like they have representation or anything so like what, that. So what about the DR? I would have expected the, the, the DR was eliminated to have been competitive. Yeah, the United States took them out. The U.S. took them out. Yeah. The United States took them out. Wow. All right. So, so we got, I mean. Listen, the United States is a deep team. It doesn't have the, the best American players in the world. They didn't play, but the next round are t- terrific yeah, players. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and it's it, it's 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 the classic thing that, like, you know, in baseball, I mean, especially when you've only got these one or two game, you, you know, these best two out of three or, or single these are, game these are single tournaments eliminations, yeah. uh, or eliminations, I mean, in, you know, a lot can happen in any one baseball game, well, even between two disparate let's, teams. Let's talk about that for a second, because the structure here is similar to the World, the World Cup, right? They, they the World do, Cup. They yeah, do, World ra- Cup. They do round robin. Round robin in the first round. In like pool, what do they call pool play? And then they go yeah. to knockout rounds. Yeah. Okay, so how do we feel as statisticians and analysts about that structure in general? I mean, I, th- I I like the pool play, certainly. Um, I would love to see the knockout rounds be like kind of a best two out of three or something like that. I, I It would be less capri- a little bit less capricious that so, way. But capriciousness isn't the only thing we can yeah, worry about, right? No, we I care understand. about entertainment. We, yeah. we want both of these things. That's yeah, you the want tension. It's got to get over st- before the baseball season starts. I think, I think I, I, I'd actually right. I mean, I mean— these guys are professional baseball players. They make their living. <laughs> yeah, they could start earlier. I mean, it's that's not true. that big of a deal. Yeah. Or, or, or you could do the pool round, like, you know, like, I mean, why not have something like the pool round, you know, one year, and then the... I, I mean, they could, they they could, could space out in a lot of different ways. I mean, so we don't like the, the knockout round. Single, single game elimination, elimination seems and even a little the two, bit three, this too is baseball, short. And baseball is a very random game, and that's yeah. why there's a long season. That's why there's best out of sevens, and even those are random. So. How many how many knockout rounds are there in this tournament? 
I think it's uh, well, it was three. Well, the, the rounds, first round is is uh, is round robin. The second round is also, and it, and, and then it's, it's, then it's basically straight into the semifinals. And then right? and then so it's only two, two rounds, two, two knockouts, two rounds, rounds of knockouts. Okay, so you could conceivably play a couple of two out of threes without extending it. Too I think far. so, especially because yeah. I mean, in baseball, you can play play them basically back to back, right? Okay, it's not right. Like you have to wait so, a week. You know, the College World Series has struggled with this over the years. Mm-hmm. They 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 play a double elimination tournament in general. But and and it led the, for a while they would continue that double elimination all the way into the finals. So some teams might arrive at the finals with yeah. one loss, another team with no losses, and they would have an extra game in hand essentially. And they decided, well, that's not properly dramatic, and so they shifted to, well, once you get there, it's a single game. But then it's disadvantageous to the team that might have gotten there. And I remember Texas one time getting knocked out. Even get, they got there undefeated, then lost the one game. Yeah. And so now they've gone to what I think is a, a much more reasonable structure which is double elimination out of each half and then a two out of three in the championship uh-huh. so it's more balanced that way what and do you guys I, feel about this proposal as an all i actually like that that's probably the best idea well, we could come but, up with the, the but. Thing is, i think what we're working on there is this this balance between analytically correct less capricious and properly dramatic yes no that's right and i mean again capricious is not bad in an entertainment you sense capricious is you, yeah i mean you right that's right i mean otherwise it's, it, otherwise it'd be probably the dominican republic and japan in the final every year and i mean whatever but um, I mean, you, you, it's also fun to watch uh, a baseball team go all out yeah i mean you don't see that here here's here's this is every, you know, I've because because of, i actually like one, one game. i like how they yeah. do this in like champions league soccer now let me propose this it's like i mean in that case it's like a home and away thing there and and obviously in the world cup the uh, baseball is less of a kind of a home field advantage or whatever but it's a home and away and it's cumulative score Ooh, what, really? do you, what, 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 what do you think of that baseball purist? Oh my god! If they did uh, a cumulative score, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like so you start out the soccer, second, it's like you after start three out the games, second, it's, it's cumulative score of one. Well, no, but well, <laughs> right. Matter. I mean, what do you think That's about right. that? No, matter. I mean, no, I mean, I, I mean, you have teams going into the second match having to win not just by like right. a goal, but having to win by well, three goals. Well, that was goals. what happened this I year. Think so it's, yeah, that, that was in a, possibly one of the worlds when we talk about the greatest upsets or comebacks ever. Yeah. but I believe it was was it Barcelona. The Barcelona against six uh, Paris Saint Germain goals in order to advance six goals in something like the second half of the game. They and scored. Four, they scored. I think three goals in the last ten minutes or something. Which like is that part I saw. I didn't uh, know yeah. it was related to some cumulative of, score. Yeah, it, it unlikely. Was a, it, they had to That's come in. I think they had to like come in and and win they by to four win by, goals or something. No, they like went by five in order to. Does do this advance. kind of raise the question of motivation matters more than we think it does? Do you think these guys are always out there hitting it? You know, at the top of their game. These are professional athletes, but it turns out they have another gear. Yeah. Well, I think in soccer, it's you do and have I think, other I, gears. And I, I think there is. A, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to channel. Our good friend Eric Bradlow, and say there is something to momentum within games and stuff like that. Oh, soccer! Know. Yeah, certainly. Well, God reminds me of the Brazil collapse in the World Cup oh my a goodness. couple years ago. Yeah, that against was Germany. Yeah. But why do you think so in soccer? What is about soccer that momentum, or how does that happen? What's the mechanism? Any idea or just observation? Uh, I mean, I, I observation mostly. I don't. I, I guess I probably don't know enough about the mechanism to. Po- I, I would postulate that there's you know certain schemes or whatever. Like like players kind of can gel in certain schemes, and it, depending on how the defense is reacting to that, you know, yeah. you know, you can actually. I mean, you can really kind of and in a you know like you can dra- dramatically increase the rate of scoring and in soccer that's you know well, you still need some luck on top of that well i'm gonna i'm gonna post this one to you Cade, because it's in some sense up your alley there i think there's only two possibilities to explain it one is the psychological defeat of the opponent 
who just sort of collapses yeah. Yeah. in the yeah. face of that's what, what that's what the Brazil game felt. Th- that's like. what it felt like. And the yeah. other side of it would be that it's it's an extremely high intensity game, yeah. and even when you're always holding something back because we can't finish. Yeah. And and what to really put it on, you can you can do it. There's another gear there. There's another mm-hmm. gear. And I mean, we see I, it at basketball in, in the Brazil <laughs> right. game, and yeah. I think in the Paris Saint Germain game as well. It was just a a, a, a complete defensive breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like of scheme and and, and sort of psychological a, and, breakdown or well, just a psychological attention I think as but, well as like a scheme breakdown. Well, well, the scheme breakdown is the kind of the more parsimonious and less sexy story that there's something structural that yeah. leads to the positive uh, I, I correlation. Hate, I hate to bring a, this up, Shane, but was oh. it psychological destruction or scheme breakdown that cost the Falcons the? <laughs> well, what do you think? They were they were fair. They were facing the greatest coach quarterback <laughs> tandem right, 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 right. in the history of professional uh, Adi, football. Adi, you're just flirting with. So there's that. Just Thank you. But Thank you. Actually, by the way, interesting. I will. It's so I do like that. Every time cl- the word collapse comes up, we're going to talk about that now. <laughs> yeah, but I will say something in in, in uh, football. You you have been talking about the greatest coach ever, Belichick, and the way he actually brings brains to the game. And I'm I'm in the in the process. I'm putting together the Moneyball Academy for the summer. And one one of the things we do is we bring in guests for to to give to speak. And I'm yeah, looking for be, a football a football. Bella, just ask Bella. Yeah, come right. so, so I'm looking for a football. It's, it's tough to get a football player at the <laughs> end of the summer. I would love to see Bill Belichick <laughs> yeah. taking questions from high school right, right. students. Yeah. That would be amazing. Uh, so that would be amazing. But what's interesting? It's hard to get a football analyst because it's a preseason. So they're pretty, it was June. That's their vacation. It's, month. Uh, it's yeah. end, no, it's it's end of July. It's so, end of July. It's in Right, July. End oh, of July. That's training camp. It's training camp, and I've reached out to a couple. So I, I met someone uh, who worked for the Redskins, and I said, "Is there anyone you could send?" And he looks at me and he says, "We don't have anyone." I said, "What do you mean you don't have anyone? It's, it's analytics. This is 2017. Snyder, Snyder's organization." And he says, "No, we don't have anyone." Welcome to Washington D.C. Welcome to hell if you're a Redskins. I mean, you, you, and you, you I couldn't are, believe you, it. Well, I you said are you have saying, no one. You are asking the <laughs> what is commonly held to be the most dysfunctional organization, perhaps in professional sports. I mean, for that's, this, that's, that, that's, that's, best, a, that's, a, that's a little strong. The strong? best he could get, he says, we have a What's guy. We have a guy who, who who displays on, on a computer screen the and updates the draft <laughs> position. Okay, I'll give you here, I mean, what. Guys, guess name the football team, the first football team that that we ever talked to about our research on the NFL draft. Me and Thaler, the first team we ever talked to, we actually spent some time with them. We actually helped them hire somebody. Would have been the first. They were one of the first analytics hire in the NFL. Eagles. Redskins. Interesting. Well, this was how many years ago now? This was like, I don't know, 04, 03? This is a long time ago. Taylor happened to be sitting next to Snyder at some event. They, they start talking. Snyder goes, yeah, I'll send my guys to Chicago. I was at Duke at the time. I went to Chicago. We can tell this story. It's so much fun. I went to Chicago. They sent like three guys from their front office to meet with us there. We talked about everything. They said, great, come out and talk to us in D.C. We spent some time with them in D.C. We helped them hire a Ph.D. labor economist who was leaving academia and wanted to move to D.C. and was raised on Redskins football and was a diehard football fan. They hired him. What happened? They fired him six weeks later. <laughs> of course in, they like, did. In, in like a, in like a of front office did. shuffle. Is yeah. it because he suggested things that are cost no, savings? It was purely purely a cost saving measure. That was one of the first full time analysts, analytics guys mm-hmm. in the NFL. And they, they still had, haven't replaced him. He was the him. most qualified guy you'll ever hire, mm-hmm. and they can't even in six weeks. And so, their success over the last decade speaks for itself. Uh, indeed. So, how many of the teams have an analytics staff? 
in the NFL? In the NFL, it's a great question. Do we know He's the answer? Anybody. We don't know the answer. I can ballpark an answer. But 538 but, publishes on in baseball, like how big all the staffs are for baseball. Well, they've, they've yeah. And it ranges from 18 down to, to two. I've but seen, everybody I've has seen them. Rank, I've seen them rank the seriousness of the analytics orientation mm-hmm. of the team. I don't know if they're actually counting staff. I would say a majority has somebody now. Yeah. But it varies, two, it varies on two dimensions. One, how many. Some teams, not many, but some have really invested but then a bigger question is, does it matter? Are people listening? It's one thing to have some guys well, that in the may building. Be the issue. It's another to have them actually having influence. But Belichick's, I mean, I think that Belichick's team is winning because it plays smart. I mean, it has to be. Well, I mean, that's one component it's of their not, success. It's not just, well, it's no, not just they playing. are one of the more analytically forward organizations, I And think, it's not just playing but. smart. I mean, there's the, there's an in-game decision-making, but probably more important, especially in the football, is the is the personnel. How, yeah. are, you building the per, how are you building personnel? Right. And they're very wise about how they go. They're, so, they're both wise, I think, about acquisition, but also about development. So uh, and, I was... I was and and, and uh, what's the word? Yeah. What's the word when you fire? What's the nice word for Separation. Separation. They seem to know when to let players go. Yeah, but yeah. so let's I mean, let's rewind a little bit. So one of the things that it's difficult, I think, in football to assimilate on the field the lessons of analysis is the regret concept. So one of the things that we're always talking about in football is you should be going for it on fourth, da- for fourth down. A lot of non-conventional plays seem to be the right plays, and the, yeah. the coaches don't yeah. want to do it yeah. because if they fail, it hurts. Yeah. So I'm going to segue slightly in the NCAA tournament. Basketball. This can, is basketball real, season. Real, real quickly, just sure. real quick, I'll give you a, a football example of regret that's really powerful. Absolutely. In the NFL draft, you sometimes have to choose between whether you want to move aggressively to take the player you want yeah. or stand pat. Or even or, or even more, you can say stand pat and take your guy or trade back a little bit and hope he's still available. So you're always choosing to take a guy a little bit earlier or a little bit later. And regret works really bad, uh, profoundly here because it only works in one direction. You, you'll, if you stand pat or trade back and it gets taken, you'll always regret not having done it. But if you move aggressively, you'll never know what the counterfactual is. You never get evidence yeah. that says you could have stood put, pat and he still would have been there. That, that information so, isn't available. So there's only one way only one to way. regret. So very, it's asymmetric regret and it pushes you towards essentially being more aggressive than you need to if you care about if this regret thing comes into your utility function and and generally it does right so the analogy that i was going to bring up in the ncaa tournament which is now heading to the sweet 16 and in the first round northwestern played vanderbilt northwestern hasn't been in the tournament ever and, ever and they and northwestern beat vanderbilt even though it was i think it was more or less a evenly matched yeah, game yeah yeah, yeah it's eight the, nine or something but the Vanderbilt player, they, Vanderbilt was up by one with, with uh, 10, 15 seconds to go. It was a, towards the end of the game. And the Vanderbilt player fouled the Northwestern mm-hmm. player coming in. Mm-hmm. And then he hit two shots and Northwestern won. And he's been ridiculed yeah. as, the, as the dumbest blunder ever. Mm-hmm. And this poor kid is, is I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of, of, of stress for, but it turns out, that it wasn't the right move. It can be the right move, but it was essentially a toss-up move. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And if you actually do the analysis, and yeah. because they got the ball, because they got the ball back. Well, they get the, his argument goes: we're up by one. If we let them, if the, we let them score, they can go up by one with no time. Yeah, and we and we will just lose. Yeah, yeah. If we, but foul they, they him, may not score. So there's they some may chance. not score, yeah. and you win. So that's that's the that turns yeah. out to yeah. be the slightly larger. Yeah, yeah. It turns out to be about of a wash. It's I mean, a, I about mean, a wash. I mean, this is like you know, I mean, a, a few years ago, the the sort of pass play that was intercepted at the end of the Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl forty nine. I mean, 
that pass play is defensible as an actual yeah. right move. Yeah. I mean, the oh, outcome yeah. was obviously not what they wanted, and they clearly regret sure calling that, that passable. But you're, but you're punished harder for taking the the, the exactly ca- the counter doing the unconventional. Move. Yeah, it was the certainly unconventional. Un- an unconventional move. We can agree on that. Absolutely. You're punished harder, and, for and, and you're punished harder when that does not go your but way. But it's not going to happen. I mean, because if you look at what happened to this poor kid psychologically, having made this move, which wasn't the dumbest move, and it wasn't toss up move. Is it's just going to create or, or, or reinforce a culture where this is oh, we're taking yeah. the unconventional move yeah. is just oh, going to hurt? For sure. Okay, I'm going to give you this one. Let's let's recap. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're going to be here for the next two hours talking sports <coughs> analytics. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Kate, Audie, and Shane at the moment. Um, unconventional. How are you choosing your Wharton Moneyball Academy? Moneyball Academy. Moneyball Academy. Moneyball Academy. Adi runs a summer program. You call it a. It's it's a it's, it's, it's a summer program. Okay, for it's, high school it's, students. It's yeah. it's a couple of weeks long. Two weeks in length. Two yeah. weeks long on analytics, on sports analytics, and you do lots of great training. You have guests come in and talk about their research, and it's become very popular and very competitive. Extremely. So you have it. You have to somehow decide. Feel terrible how to, about it. How yeah. do you decide who to take in this program? How are you going to decide among the hundred, literally hundreds of high school kids who want to come? He's to got this? the first Moneyball Analytics team of all the, uh, you know, well, of all the academies. I will say of all the academies, he's got the first. I did something team. which I can tell you isn't done at almost all admissions offices around the country, no matter what the what the program was. So what I did was is I went to last year's group. Last year's group we had about 140 applications, and I took about 70. So it was about a 50 percent acceptance rate. And I and I created um, a database of their of what the information that I had about them going in, which is essentially grades, math grades, recommendations, essay, the, just the usual yeah, the stuff usual that you stuff. get from kids. And then you have an outcome measure. And then I kind. went to my TAs because they knew the students. There's no exams, so my course doesn't have exams, but there's a final project, and we do have a chance to really get to know the yeah, kids, and we know sure. who's good and who's, who's two weeks, not. yeah, two all weeks. day long, two weeks. And I had my TAs grade the students, yeah, and we came up with the predictors of beautiful success, and yeah. and and this year I'm so now you have a model. I have a model. Okay, so and how so much I variance does the model explain? This is really important for this process how much variance does the model okay so the part of the problem is is why it's hard there's very little explained by the model is that the kids are all terrific exactly i mean i have to i cannot applaud the applicants stronger a hundred okay so i have a solution for you absolutely i'll tell you what we use i'll tell the public what we use Tell so us. I mean, it, it, because the applicants are so strong, they all have good math skills. Yeah. And and the thing that is least useful for the anyone who has kids applying to college, the thing that matters zero because there's no variance at all yeah. is references. Yeah, right. Every single reference just it's sounds gory. exactly and, the and, same. And, and, oh, and, yeah. and they might be legitimately so. And that's right. And some yeah. are, and some aren't. I just don't have <laughs> the ability to tell. So what I ended up making the decision based on, largely in some sense, was the essay. And because I'm able to do that in this particular program because I'm really interested in your desire and interest in the topic. And you, th- and you think that's credibly communicated in the essay? I think so. And this is what, my, this is what we observed from the previous year. The you ones know, you who could increase the Oh, you're saying that we observed that it last yes. year. The essay grades correlated with the the TA's evaluations. TA's evaluations, exactly. The passion in the essay corresponded to passion in the program, and of course, this is the, this is the kicker. This is for folks. This is it. Computer science skills. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Let's save a second thing there. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. I okay. wanted some programming. All right. So, so let, uh, you could increase the variance here um, by like just doing a lottery one year. 
Oh, this is where I was going. You yeah, stole my I'm thunder. Sorry, I'm totally sorry. Stole my thunder. It occurred to me too. I mean, you know, if you if you're having trouble just picking the, t- you know, you could actually, yeah, have a lottery one year, and then, so, and then I can then I can go and then back you'd and have really a high, you presumably right. have yeah. a higher variance, and mm-hmm. you'd be able to even firm, more firmly establish like essay computer science. So what you're, as, you're asking me to do is an experiment. Well, yeah, more, I, I'll give you more. Which you, you love? I'll give I you do. more rationale for that. But these are than, children's let's, lives. Let me grab. Yeah, no, and I mean, the poor ones that don't get in are doomed to a lifetime of. The truth is, is that it's random anyway. Go on. Well, so I'm listening to a Tyler Cowen podcast. He has a great podcast. This is, a, this is an economist out of George Mason, and he's one of the best interviewers out there. He's cur- he, One of his most recent ones was an interview with Malcolm Gladwell. So I'm listening to the podcast this morning, and Cowen asked these great questions. And, and at one point he asked Gladwell, if you were the president of Harvard, they've been talking about higher education and Harvard and Ivies, and he said, if you were the president of Harvard, what changes would you make? And he said, not president. If you were the board, you and your mom ran Harvard, basically. What would you do differently? So he takes this question up relatively seriously. And one of the first things he says, maybe the first thing he says, is "I for for admissions, I would set a minimum threshold and then everything else would be lottery. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. On on I came in, wanted to ask you guys this question. And then you told me you had this, this admissions challenge. With your academy, and it seems very relevant. So wh- why would so there are limitations? To would that, he be doing I, that just love, want once to like sort of for an experiment, or does he no, sort of see, feel like so he I, wants to do it like right? I wanted okay, to put I, it on I, the I, I, I wanted to put it on the table for non-experimental reasons. Shane had a great you know as a so- social scientist, it is the way to discover the validity of your model is starts to exogenously manipulate, randomly assign people. You're going to discover whether your model works the way you think it does. But there are other reasons you might do it if. You have this super flat maxima, which is what you're facing with your mm-hmm. academy. If the kids are basically all equally in qualified. In the first year that I did the program, we had 55 applicants, and I took 50, and it was a great program. Yeah, exactly. The right. kids were wonderful. I, I mean, just And the terrific. ones who knew about your program, yeah. I mean, at that point, really were demonstrating something. So this is, the thing that I, random, I, I, this is the thing that random doesn't get. Well, let me say one other thing for random. What I love about higher education doing it, and for example, I think we ought to do some of that. Yeah, I think some. I, th- I, I know there's. <laughs> let's just be provocative and embrace it. What if we took a couple hundred that were randomly chosen above some minimum threshold? And this is for the MBA program. Build the model. Yeah, but part one of the reasons is philosophically, you're telling them you're here by chance. It's you know you, you want yeah. on one hand you want them to have confidence in themselves. On the other hand. They need to know. There's too a lot of randomness. That's out right, there. and the, and the Wharton MBAs yeah. are a little bit, a little bit too and, overcomplicated, and, and not just Wharton MBAs. But the thing is, interesting. You, you mentioned the Wharton MBA program because MBA program. You and I have both done some consulting for this, for this, for the admissions, and we know that they care about this. But the admissions department and the undergraduate has no feedback loop. You know, most most admissions groups don't do. Feedback. They don't do it, and yeah. and I did it with my program. But I'll, I'll yeah. make a one revision to that to the Gladwell proposal. Yeah. And one thing that I do did notice, and this is we noticed when we came back, there were superstars in my class of last year. There of the seventy seven, there were two or three. One in particular, and you think they were identifiable ex ante? And, and ex ante, they were. Now the thing is, there was one student who stood above all the others, particularly. I mean, so there was different yeah. tiers, and this yeah. one was. Further than okay. anyone, and this student wasn't didn't distinguish himself in the applicant pool. You couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. 
The exactly. one student who was so magnificent Brady, that I, I wanted to be in the PhD program. You're right. I want, the kid was so amazing. I wanted. He's like, you're ready for PhD. Jeez. And he's in high school, and I couldn't tell by looking at his application. Well, this this is the thing. You want you <laughs> you basically want to get a longer look at people before you make important decisions about them. And so you, this is a great way for you to vet. You know, a whole pool of kids. Essentially, it's not the it's not the, at the application process. The whole academy. The whole academy. What, 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 is, what, what is would you say to a set of knockout rounds? <laughs> <laughs> you could bring in more oh. people. Yeah, basically, well, that, uh, well, well, that would be the first shame, week. Uh, the first week's it. a knockout round. Right? <laughs> and then you try to good luck, Adi. Now you have a reality TV show on. Yeah, your oh my goodness! There's so and and we need oh we need God. to get Belichick in on that. Ana- analytics, Belichick's reality the one that, TV. Be- yeah, Belichick's the one that cuts them. <laughs> Belichick's the one that does the final cutting process. I think Matt Johnson. I think yeah. we have a we brand have extension. A, we have a brand extension. Oh on our my hands. goodness! This Imagine watching off. them code oh, yeah. and put together. You know, grabbing data from around yeah. from around the web, putting together a project, having to make the presentation, and then we vote on cutting them from the program. Be like, well, you had tremendous upside potential but <laughs> so this other guy so you know ya. you forgot to check that see outlier ya. that outlier destroyed you know. your analysis and it destroyed you you're gone no, you're, so, gone. you're so gone you maybe you, maybe you'll get picked up by like you know the columbia money the columbia ball like academy who knows i think it's the other thing you might do when <laughs> when you have a flat maximum among, among your applicant in your applicant pool is to make decisions based on policy so you, for example, I remember last year, I'll go into guest lecture this group, and they're like two girls and, you know, 68 guys. And you're like, where are the girls? Y'all go back and tell your friends that this thing exists and we need more women in here. So you might buy policy. I did have that privilege. Policy. Even if you were random, mm-hmm. you might buy policy privilege some group. If if you had strategic reasons for it. Okay, so it. actually, get to, to wrap up this discussion as we come into our end of our half, I did. We did promote the program among girls in high school, and we did get many more applicants. And I'm up to eight this year. All right. And we have another round of admissions, so we might actually clear the ten mark. Mm-hmm. And it's it's and and I have to say it 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 was admissions by policy. I wouldn't have accepted any of them who didn't who I didn't feel could handle the program. Right. And there There's are a, a few minimum. That, That's there right. is there, a minimum. And there needs to be a minimum. But I but essentially, if you were over that threshold, and I believed you could handle it, you were and you were right for it because there was there are students who I mean just to give some background, it's the statistics and computing class, all done in the context of sports analytics. So there's a lot to gain right. if you don't know or love sports. Right. But the, the the reason why it's enjoyable is to love sports. And many <laughs> students right. come in thinking, this is my back door to Wharton. I'm interested in business analytics. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I won't accept you if you don't demonstrate an, a love of sports. Right. So that's, that's the piece that, that the Gladwell proposal, as, as tongue-in-cheek as it is, is, is missing. And that's the how do you capture... How do you get that self-selection thing going on? How yeah. do you identify? How do you how do you give people the opportunity to demonstrate that they're especially passionate about this organization? That's right, and that's what college admissions is all about. This is the lesson that the experts try to teach the high school kids. If there's a college you want, and even if a college you don't want, convince them that you want them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they're looking for—a desire for yeah. you to be really want that. College. I, I think it's not that different when it comes to interviewing companies, like even our MBAs, mm-hmm. as they leave out of here. Yeah. People want to know that. Yeah. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Money, but we still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. Tatiana on the soundboard. 
brand new sound engineer being trained under the tutelage, the wise tutelage of Dion Simpkins, bringing us around up from the bottom of the hour. This is Cade Massey, joined by my co-host, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. We're going to be here for the next hour and a half. You can join the conversation. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We pick up those emails live. We also pick them up when we're replayed over the course of the week. In this half hour, we are delighted to be joined by our friend, friend of the show, Dan Schwab. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. How are you today? We're doing, I'm doing fine. Dan has been in the studio with us before. He's an alum. He's co-president of DNH Distributing. He's a member of the Wharton's um, undergrad executive board, the board that oversees our, our, our large and impressive undergraduate program. And he's in town today to do a little guest spot. Tell us about this guest spot that you're doing, Dan. Well, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, Professor Etan Green asked me to be a guest lecturer for his Wharton MBA class on uh, negotiations. Okay. So it's always a challenge when you're presenting to an audience that's a lot smarter than you. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of uh, talking on the fly today. That's great. So uh, h- how excited are you to talk about negotiation in particular? I love it because I think no matter what you do in every aspect of your life and business, there's some level of negotiation. So I'm going to share with them a pretty broad range from negotiating with an SAP or Oracle for an ERP to negotiating with Meg Whitman at HP Enterprises on a new program to leveraging FedEx versus UPS as a carrier. So all sorts of different uh, nuances that I think I think will bring real real world examples that I think they'll find fun and valuable. Can I come? Yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about this. We we, we statisticians live in our own little department. Well, you're, you should come drop by Aton's. Aton is, a, is a, one of our newest professors at Wharton. He's crazy smart. He's out of Stanford, actually, so a buddy of yours. He offices right next to me, Dan, and, he's, and, he's, and I teach negotiation right now, too, so we're talking about that class. Yeah, in fact, I sit in, sat in on Cade's class uh, earlier this week, and I learned a lot about negotiation. <laughs> For example, it turns out that, you know, my, my usual technique of just sort of sarcasm is, is not necessarily the optimal <laughs> path to a, the end of a negotiation <laughs> in all contexts. I mean, it's, it's obviously – served, It's served me well through my life, but you've got to pick your balance. So, Dan, give us – I'll ask you one question for a little foretaste of your guest spot there. What do you consider to be the, the most important element to a successful negotiation? Well, clearly it's about doing your homework, but I think one of the nuances that goes underappreciated – is the person you're negotiating with, what is their motivating factor? Mm-hmm. So if they are, what is their compensation plan? If you're negotiating with someone, mm-hmm. you know, you know, what is motivating them, right? A lot mm-hmm. of times you're very in, internally focused. What are you trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. I think it's critical to understand what they're trying to achieve and even not just their company's objectives, but that individual's objectives. Mm-hmm. And if you find that That's out, great. a lot of times you can uh, turn it to, to your advantage. Dan, it's amazing to me how often I ask experienced, successful negotiators what they consider to be the most important thing in a negotiation, how often they say something very close to what you said. The naive negotiator thinks it's all about asserting your own rights, asserting your interests, pounding the table, being strong. The experienced negotiator turns it around and says it's about understanding the other side. It's, it's, it's remarkable how consistent people are, and the successful, experienced guys are in naming that. Isn't that the analogy in poker? When you're playing poker, it's not about your hand. It's about your opponent's hands. Well, I, I'm not enough of a poker player to know, but isn't it both? Isn't it the it re- is, relative? But, but a, 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 it's too easy to imagine that you can decide what to do by looking at your Just cards. Just at your own, yeah. I have, these are, I have three aces, okay? That's not the way it works. Right. It, you have to try to think deeply about what your opponents have. Right. So my, my, my father was a, lawyer, was a lawyer in West Texas for 50 years. And I, when I first started teaching negotiation, I asked him what he thought the key to success in negotiation was because lawyers do a lot of negotiating. And he said, well, I had this longtime business partner. This guy was a, a trader. I remember him when I was a kid. He died in the 80s or so. But this guy was a trader in the old sense of like 
trading cattle and ranches and trucks. I used to clean his office. His office was a phone and, uh, and an ashtray. That was all that was in his office. <laughs> horse trading, old-fashioned horse whole, trading. Like literally horse trading. And my, so my, he, he died a very wealthy man. And my, my dad, when I asked my dad for this, this insight, he said, well, this, man, this guy used to tell me. He said, if you can figure out what the other guy wants, if you can figure out what the other guy needs, or better yet, what he wants, you can get just about anything from him. Yep. It's like old West Texas. It's right yeah. at the heart, right at the heart of negotiation. Yep. And what's key is even uh, if you do that, it actually sets you up for success for the next negotiation. Because it's rare that it's a one-time deal. Maybe if it's an acquisition, it's a one-time deal. It's often an ongoing relationship where there's going to be two years now a renegotiation. So you figure out how they can win as well. It makes it easier the next time mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the negotiations that's going on in the NBA right now is between the league office and teams on sitting their players. Yeah. Have you guys, have you guys followed this? Yes. Yeah. In fact, I, I think uh, the Cavs got into trouble very recently, right? Yeah, so they sat the big three like, and for, it's not just, for this, like, I think the second game in a row or something like well, that? Or? It, was, it, was a, it was a high-profile game. So ABC yeah. has these Saturday night games, and for two Saturdays in a row, the, the top team basically sat yeah. their key players. They got they, – they, they too obvious about what every team in the NBA does for about 60 out of 80 games in the regular season, which is phone it in. <laughs> 60 is a little strong, <laughs> a little a little much. Well, Popovich started this years ago, and it was all about the playoffs, right? It's yeah. not about the regular season. Well, no, I mean, it's obviously well, the about the playoffs. We know who's going to be in the playoffs, and I mean, I don't know why teams are... Yeah, I, I, I think the NBA season of all seasons is way too long. Well, the, what they have tried to do to mitigate it, I think this is going to be implemented next year, is to expand the season by a week in order to give them more rest. So you build in seven more days of rest, essentially, across the course of the season. So that's supposed to take the edge off of that. But they really don't like the sitting thing, but they especially don't like it when it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, I think one of the things they're asking for is, is bigger notice. But I don't know. This game must have been scheduled for this TV slot for a long time. It was, and, the, and that's the issue is that the NBA, and that's why they that's why they wrote the letter to all the not to the managers or coaches, but to the, the owners. owners. The they owners. wrote it directly to the owners. <laughs> they said that you know the stakeholders, and it really is the fact that the fans have an issue with it. They're losing money because they're they're getting yelled at by ESPN or TBS or TNT, all the people that carry it. And then their fans are disappointed. So it's not yeah. just the local home team that that's the one time OKC's in town and they don't see Westbrook or you know the right. Golden State's in town and they they don't see Durant or. Um, it's more than that because it's now the nationally televised game, and the ratings are affected, which affects their advertisers, which affects right. their bottom line. But the players, do the players care? And this is part of the collective bargaining. Is, is that their issue today? Right. Why is there no not enough parity in the NBA? Because that would make it exciting. I mean, if you actually had to fight for your because spots. the teams, because it's 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 a five person game, and, and, and then it. you just need it's one or two amazing the players. Answer. There's just not but enough. Then, well, it got, it's it got, hard to enforce parity when you've got people like LeBron or or Curry that can just dominate a game. But then that was exacerbated by some of the signing rules and the economics that allowed oh, sure. that allowed yep. teams to aggregate. So mm-hmm. it started with Miami yeah. with the big three in Miami, but then. The most extreme version was Durant moving from OKC to Golden State last year, and that was available because the, the, salary re- cap, the, right? the revenue spiked yeah. up, and so there was this extra room, and um, Golden State was able to grab him. But in response to that, back pushing towards parity, they gave the teams now a way to pay their best player more and keep on. So basically the incumbent teams have an advantage going forward because OKC got so screwed. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. And it was this weird combination of things that led to it. Really feel bad but for the problem, But the problem, piggybacking up off of what you just sh- Shane said, was that it is a very dominated game by single players, and they don't make enough money to make sure they go, they, they, you know, that, that kind of crowds you out for the rest. 
So you yeah. can you can pay only twenty eight million or thirty million to one player and well, have another it's, player. It, it, it's, it's essentially a, what what Cade was talking about. With yeah. like, it's, it, you need to give some advantage to the incumbent team. I mean, it's kind of like you know. I mean, like football. I mean, football doesn't have as much of this problem. But I mean, it's essentially things like the franchise tag that where you can kind of yeah. say like this person yeah. is important enough to us that we're well, going to keep. But you know. Adi's, Adi's saying this other thing, which is because of the salary cap. You can't pay a guy his true value. That's right. And that means that that means the, you can have LeBron the, and two other great yeah, players. Right. Yeah. So whenever the big three were in Miami, those guys were all paid the same, which was which absurd, is insane. LeBron needs sixty million. Yeah. yeah more. And that way, you he has to have a, a yeah. Crew then he plays with Scrubs. It's yeah. LeBron and Scrubs. And then he get parity. Well, I think adjusting the salary and, and helping the incumbents teams that draft the players. I think that for the general fans. You know, the super teams are fun to watch, but I think having more parity across the leagues, that's what baseball did, right? Baseball put the salary cap in and for a lo- worked for a long time because teams like the Yankees were so penalized. A luxury doing tax. A luxury it's not a, tax, it's right? not a cap. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Did that really – did the luxury tax do anything to spending? Really? Well, I think for really, a couple – I mean, we still money, got the dodge. It sends money around. We've it sends still, money we, around. I mean, that's well, what it does. Okay, I guess it does. But we've still got – but, but that, that money is not necessarily it, – it, money is sent to the poor teams. It's that's not right. – the teams are not compelled no. to use that on personnel. That money just goes to – like, Oakland gets that money. Miami gets that money. They and they get it. They don't have to spend on players. I mean, I think a salary cap – and it's not really – obviously, it's not a cap. But it, it, it doesn't work unless you actually enforce a minimum, too. Right, I mean, I mean, because right now the the poor, the quote unquote poorer baseball teams are just taking that mu- that luxury tax money from the Yankees and pocketing it. But there there are poor teams doing well in baseball. We sure, but they did. Uh, that was all. That was always the case because baseball is is more. You know, money is not directly correlated system. with success. Right. I mean, the, and there's also like ways of kind. You know, there's ways of developing young talent and all that stuff. But I mean. You know the Dodgers and Yankees are still going to be able to and spend the Red them. Sox, with, come on, let's and not the Red forget. Sox are still going to be able to spend their way in close think, to the playoffs. I think yeah. they're conscious of it now because it costs mm. them that much more. I think because they got. I think it, they'd overswung this yeah. pendulum, and they had they had some years where they didn't do well, and they had this crazy well, look cap. At, yeah, look at the Yankees right now. They have they finally got rid of all these overpaid aging superstars, and they've got a crew of terrific young players. Uh, well, I, I, think, I that, think that's, that's well, cost. No, well, I, I yes, but I would I would argue that that particular like kind of shift in the Yankees organization is more recognition is less about the penalty of the luxury luxury tax and more strategy. of a recognition that like. <laughs> In this in this post steroid world, that you you are you are actually better served with youth. Yeah, you Look know, at on, on, on the on the, the poor Bautista world. can't get a job. So this yeah. is this is quite the we have quite the AL East crew here. Better better yeah. distribution than usual because of course Adi is a Yankees fan and, Shane, and Eric and yeah. Shane is well, this is the thing Eric's not here to That's double right. up on the Yankees. Yeah. We've got Shane representing Boston, of course, and then Dan comes in, and I understand Dan's an O's fan. Yeah. I am. I'm uh, one of the few in this. Uh, it's challenging in this market. There's so many between Boston and New York. I'm, I'm crowded out. Well, well, then you got Toronto to deal with too, right? Because that's a very serious club. Yeah, well, people forget too. Toronto. One of the things that Toronto is it's one of the the four largest markets in North America, and they only have one team, whereas the other three markets all have two teams. Okay. So if you think about it, they over they were great in the early '90s. They then kind of hibernated for a while. But now that they've got the fan base and the the, the baseball contract, the TV contract, all of a sudden they're spending now mm-hmm. similar to other organizations. I mean, what do they pick up five all stars from the Miami Marlins the one year yeah, when they yeah, had the fire sale? Right. So all of a sudden, it's interesting that 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 division is. Gonna... And, they, and they have Mark Shapiro, who's an analytics savvy guy and an organization builder, process oriented guy, just moved over from the Indians, left the Indians in very good shape, and now he's there. That is a tough division. It's tough to be a fan of a team in that division. Yeah. I'm a big O's guy, by the way. My buddy Joe Simmons has completely pulled me into the Baltimore Orioles orbit. 
And you, it's hard not to pull for the little guy in that division, but especially when I'm grouped with these chumps in here every <laughs> Wednesday, hearing about the Red Sox. Yeah, I mean, and I, yeah, I, I, the the O's are actually, I think, my probably my second favorite team. I, I mean, I obviously kind of. You know, hate all I, just because you see them. They're you the see same. them like 19 times a season. It's hard. You to have, only but... root for them so that the Yankees don't make the playoffs when the Red well, Sox. Well, no, that's true. No, but I disproportionately. I mean, because I could uniformly root for all the other teams. I mean, certainly I root for all the other teams against the Yankees, division or well. not, right? But I, I feel like I root at, the Orioles. I think are are. I mean, I, all right, good to hear. Yan- Yankees versus Tampa Bay. Insulting. That's kind of a t- it's toss a little up insulting. Cause... It's like I can if you can pull for a team in your own division, it means you really don't consider them a threat. Yeah, it kind of is. It's pretty <laughs> much I have to tell you, Machine, I have, I have memory. I didn't mean to come across. I mean, that was, it's in my head it was actually going to be a nice statement. I have memory of the Orioles back in the Earl Weaver, Eddie Murray days, mm-hmm. and the Yankees' rivalry was in, as intense against Baltimore as it was against Boston. So I have no uh, no love of the Orioles. How about <laughs> Man- Manny Machado was reason enough to love the Orioles. Yeah. Great let's, just watch that, let's just watch that Actually, guy. Is, and what's the story? He's gonna, you got two. Is it, who's who's going to be more expensive? Harper or Machado? Oh, when Harper. They come up. Oh, Harper, right? Harper. I think Harper. I don't know. Machado's Harper had, right a, had, a, had a tough season last year. But it's, sure, it's a shame but... that you know these this whole generation of kids that are raised up in these players. And you and you wish you grew up, right? If you're a if you're a Twins fan, it was Kirby Puckett. If you're an Orioles fan, it was Kyle Ripken. If you're San Diego, it was Tony Gwynn. You wish those guys could spend more of their career, but you just know the checkbook's going to be bigger someplace else. That's the you know the unfortunate. But wait, I thought this luxury tax totally disincentivizes teams <laughs> from pulling this, right? I mean, <laughs> nope. I, I assume the luxury tax will keep Harper and. Machado from being on the Yankees in a couple years. Uh, no. No. They're going to be on the Yankees. They're going to be on the Yankees. I think they're going to be on the Yankees. They're going to be on the Yankees. So how, did, how did they lose Kano? How did, why did he lose? Cano. Cano. Okay, Cano. Why did they lose Cano? Um, Seattle paid more. Seattle paid a lot of money. And, why did and, they let him go, though? Wasn't he supposed to be the next, like, the next guy? He has been the next guy. Yeah. He's been a second baseman with unbelievable talent. That was a, a, a questionable move on the Yankee part. I mean, he was in his, in his early 30s, and there's a concern... That once you hit the early 30s, the next five years of production is going to be yeah. highly, highly uh, it was un- curtailed. It was and- certainly an uncharacteristic move for the Yankees because, yes, they would have had to pay him a gigantic contract, that the one that Seattle paid him, where he's probably going to be worth the money for the first few years and not worth yep. the money for the last five uh, or six. That they, they and, and, really? and, and, Teams but the still Yankee, do that? The, well, no, do no the Yankees do that the all the time. I, so that's the unconventional thing is that they somehow didn't pull the trigger on this particular case when, like, you know, ninety nine times out of a hundred, they would pull the trigger on that, right? Because it's all about here and yeah. I mean, because see, I mean, we're, what we're looking at, I, actually, I think CC Sabathia is a pretty good contract because he's managed to. He's still going. Yeah, he's still going. You know, and obviously still he's not. His... He's not worth the money he's being paid yeah. at the back end of the, of that deal, but he's still a productive pitcher. But like you know, Alex Rodriguez, you're kind of just paying him to be a coach now, like twenty five million dollars. That's right. For example, what about their young guy? They've got a they've got a guy they called up last year. They're supposed Gary to be Sanchez is, is, a, is a, a new catcher? face. He's a catcher. He hit um, home runs at a, at a dazzling rate of nearly ten or eleven at bats per home. I run. hear he's the new Babe Ruth. They claim he's, but he's interesting fellow. Oh, so hold on, you gave us a good heuristic. So uh, a home run per ten or eleven at bats is, is dazzling. Is dazzling. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's like, like, Barry, that's like fifteen Barry is, a, is, a, is a home run. You know, it's a terrific home run season. What's base rate? Base rate for MLB. Uh, well, for for depends on the position, of sure. course. Um, 
25. Okay. You know, wow. one or 25, 30. So this is a really small sample, though. But it was his first season. But it was his impressive? first season, and it was this, a small sample. Not even a full season. It was the last quarter you know, of the season. Over 20 months oh, and a quarter of a season. Oh, gosh. So okay. he was on B- Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, like that kind of level, like yeah, 60 plus home runs. That's right. Okay, so how do you how do you extrapolate from that? What do you forecast? Very difficult. I'd love to. I mean, the problem with Sanchez, and this is he was not a superstar in the minors. So where'd this come from? We what don't know. Heck? I mean, Harper hit the crap out of the ball in the minors. You well, I mean, you know. right, that's right. And I mean, like, you, you know, the the argument against Sanchez having, like, this, certainly the similar, same level of success is, A, very few people are able to accomplish that, and B, that the pitchers, you know, he perhaps, yes. perhaps he had something uncharacteristic that pitchers weren't worth... Weren't, yeah. weren't Roy? It would be fascinating if that mattered seeing, that much. Well, I, no, it definitely does. I mean, in sports, you can't argue against momentum, right? Yeah. So he had we confidence argue all the time, all, all the time. time. And you step your foot in this I, one. Bring it on, bring it <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. So, so he had confidence. You know, batters were talking. I know Cal Ripken well. He talks about it all the time, and what a difference confidence makes in a bat. He says it's it's the difference between successful players and not successful is forgetting the previous at bats mm-hmm. and going in there confident that you are going to hit this guy. Mm-hmm. But but even greater than that, I so think by that, the way. Uh, for the class, if you can name drop Cal Ripken in your negotiation, <laughs> guess you might just a little. A little yeah. um, but secondly, I do think that they figure people out. They talk about like the sophomore season, right? Yeah. The, they've all of a sudden this guy can't hit the breaking ball, you know, down and out, right? Yeah. All those things they don't have that body of work. And guess what? They're all these teams are racing for the playoffs, so they're not going to spend that much time to worry about this one guy if the Yankees, you know, weren't going to. Okay, make but it. but Dan, we're going to challenge you on whether or not a sophomore slump is truly psychological. Mm-hmm. Guys, what are the other elements? I think regression why, to the well, well, there's regression to the oh, meat, yeah. certainly, because there's a luck component to what uh, Sanchez. But I, I do, I, I, I mean, people play. I do think pitcher adjustments to batters is a huge thing. Yeah, in, that's in not that's not psychological though. No, that's, no, no, that's, that's structural no, yeah, change. No, that's structural change. No, no. So I think it's mostly. I, th- in my opinion, it's ninety percent both pitcher adjustment and regression. And then, and then of course, you've got this, the, the Sports Illustrated jinx, which is a important <laughs> factor. Oh, is right, yeah. he on Sports oh, Illustrated, Roy? Really? No, so no. the forecast for Sanchez is, I mean, the sky's the limit. But I think that's an overconfident prediction. I hate to bet against the Yankee. But he's a catcher too. You got to factor that in. Catchers just they just well, right? There's wear and tear they too. They're more they're injury. So they're more difficult. injury prone. Well, how is he defensively? Because that's an important part for it's a really important position defensively. Extremely right? important de- defensively. Uh, they, you know, it, this is the kind of thing that time will tell. I mean, he, he seems to be okay behind the plate. He's got a strong arm. Okay, I'm, I think I'm going to short this whole story because he's a Yankee. Because he's a baby. We have a very small sample. You want to get excited about him? I'm short. I'm yep. short Sanchez. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. The That's... room is short, Sanchez. I can't, I can't be short in my own, my own player, but uh, Even unfortunately, you're a skeptical, I, think, right? I am skeptical. But well, the Yankees do have a good crew of young, youngsters. It's, what's incredible about it is this, they, 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 they uh, paid in free agency Chris Carter. They brought He was an NL home run champion, 41 homers. Basically, the guy couldn't get a job. Guy hits, leads the league in home runs and can't, can't get can't. Get a job. Yankees paid him three million dollars, which is essentially well, his nothing. On base percentage is like two fifty. No, his on base. I checked this. His on base percentage. His batting average is two twenty, and his on base percentage is three twenty. So he gets the right amount of walks. And if you look at him conventionally, he's a, he's a superstar. But it's amazing how the an analytics community is so completely overturned baseball that you look at this guy. He's forty one home runs, ninety four RBIs, and you're like, eh, nothing. Wow. That is interesting. And that is his a war is, was 0.9. He wasn't even worth a, a single win. There it goes, right wow. there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And they intend to platoon him. <laughs> All right. So 
Dan, we've only got a few minutes before we go into the the halftime break. But are there other anything else around sports that's caught your eye recently? Well, I thought you were talking about uh, baseball players and contracts. How when you sign this guy when they're tw- twenty eight to a ten year contract, you know the last five years yeah. there may be law of diminishing returns. Interesting thing with tennis today. So you know the argument. There's articles about uh, Djokovic, who's at twenty nine. He's he's falling off a cliff, and he's in his, is his career over. But yet the flip side, you've got you know Federer having this resurgence. Yeah, that's really cool. It's same thing with golfers. So the question really is, do they hit a certain point in their ears? Is there are there factors outside of their lives? Is it married and they've got kids and they maybe become defocused for a while, but then they get re- rejuvenated? That happened in tennis with an Andy Roddick later in his career. It happened with a Jimmy Connors in the in the career. So it's interesting to see is it is it a straight decline down? Is it just a typical bell curve of your career that you peak and then decline? Or are there other uh, factors? Because that, from a tennis standpoint, it's very atypical that you have these uh, aberrations. What, what is the best explanation of what's going on with Federer? Well, this year he was injured. Or excuse me, last year he was injured, so he's healthy. But he, was, he hasn't been number one in the world. You know, he's won a major in over five years. And he won a major with all the best players there. Um, and now he just won his second tournament in a row, which they call the fifth major, which is uh, Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. So um, there's nothing aberrational about him. Is you know he's beating some of the players that some of the other players lost to other players that haven't been. So some of them have uh, had some uh, atypical. Well, I mean, uh, the counter argument would be that his number one talent or opponents are Djokovic and uh, Nadal, and those guys are aging too. So. Yeah, though, I mean, again, he, there must be something about his style of game or his training, at, uh, because training it's so procedure far. It's or so something far. like that. Because he's he's substantially older than them, right? Yeah, I mean, 35. Like, yeah, yeah. So, 30s, 29, 30. But so, Nadal is in his 30s and Djokovic is 29. And, well, right. I, 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 I mean, yeah, they're, uh, we can all agree they're actually technically aging at the same rate. Right? But <laughs> not on a percentage basis. Oh, sure. Bring math into the equation. On a log scale. <laughs> well, okay. On, on a linear scale, they're aging at the same rate. But I, clearly, Federer does have something in his game. Maybe, I, I, I don't know. Is it a style of game? Or is it like, you know, just something about training I, I, or is it I, a mental focus thing? Who knows? I, I did read that he has practiced in particular on the on the on Nadal's shot that gives him so much help. Yeah. So this high bouncing backhand shot that he's had so much trouble with, he's playing it differently and has worked it and has and demonstrated his ability to basically remove that weakness yeah. from his game. And that's extraordinary. At that stage of his career to be able to do that is, is yeah. extraordinary. There's some kind of mental focus there. So guys, that has been our first hour. We're, we're going to keep Dan. Dan Schwab is going to stay around with us through the end of the show fantastically. And we've got uh, we always bring in another guest at the top of the hour so we have Ed Fong um, come in and Jana, join us to talk a little bit about NCAA basketball. He's going to ring from Ann Arbor I believe. So we have lots more to talk about. We have an hour left on the show. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. 
This morning is Cade, Adi, and Shane. Eric is out doing Eric things. We're also joined by a guest co-host, Dan Schwab, friend of the program, Wharton alumni, Wharton board member, and today guest lecturer in Aton Green's negotiation class, which is going to be fun. Dan's in for the next hour as well. And this being the top of the second hour, we generally bring in a guest. You can you can join. You can guest if you want. Give us a ring, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. But we're also going to hear from Ed Fang, our friend out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, typically, who does analytics in a couple different sports. We've talked to him recently, I think, in the last football season about his football work. We've talked with him a number of times over the years, and we're bringing on today to see what he has to say about NCAA basketball. Ed, good morning. Good morning, Kate. How are you? Doing great, man. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm great. Are you, in great. fact, ringing from Ann Arbor? I, I am in Ann Arbor. Are you making plans for like to, a pep rally to see the team off? Is or is, is, is the town all fired <laughs> yeah, up? Yeah, probably check in on that. Yeah, that's, that's probably. Do a good you have idea. little little pom poms and a little old school you know thing to yell through and cheer? Yeah, absolutely. We got well, we, you know, they give her out the maze pom poms at football games. So yeah, we can just recycle those and uh, make you go. And it's been a fun time for the city. Uh, oh yeah, you know, uh, you know they made a they made quite a run in 2012, which is actually uh, 2013. The first year that uh, we lived here, and uh, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, there's there's kind of no bad words to, to say about the team. No, right now. it's great. I mean, I college towns like Ann Arbor are great fun to live in anyway. But then when you throw in some some big success or a good run in the tournament, that's just that's just right. that's just great. But you know, we know you wouldn't get caught up in like superstitions and stuff. You're a scientific guy. You're you're well trained. You run analytics, so I'm sure your approach to your fandom is free from that silly fan superstition thing. So just give us an example. Like, what do you wear to the games, Ed? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I ran out of the house uh, for the game with a laundry problem the other day. So, uh, you know, I ended up uh, wearing some overalls, which is not exactly my normal uh, daily attire, even though I do work in my basement at home. So this was the first round. And, first uh, round of the game, you go to the game in overalls. You, go to, you, go, you watch yeah. the game in overalls. Okay, so not a big deal. Overalls. Not a big deal. That's fine. Big it happens. Deal. What about then, the second uh, round? And then my friends asked me to wear the same get up again. And, and you, being uh, a scientifically minded guy, said, "No way, that's silly. That's ridiculous." Yeah, no, I said it was silly. Except I, I knew, Kate, that there was a zero percent probability that that would affect the team in a negative way. So I decided to go for it and, uh, and just do it. And I was pretty sure that was the last time I'd be wearing this overall because I I despise the matchup between Michigan and Louisville. Okay, um, Michigan really struggles with strong defensive teams like Louisville, teams that really rebound, got a lot of thick, tall athletes like they do. Um, so how did they pull it out? They, I mean, they had one of the most magical offensive runs that I've seen this team play against strong defense, I mean, in a while. I mean, they 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 they, uh, they put the ball in with an efficiency for about 10 minutes in that second half that um, that was just amazing. That's great. Yeah. Well, how do you like the matchup with Oregon? And I'm assuming you're going to be in the overalls again. Of course you are, um, which really undermines your credibility on this show, by the way. Just want to get that out there. No, I, I, completely, I completely understand that. I will consider not wearing them. <laughs> no, Actually, we wanted, we wanted to. We are fans as well. And, of course, like Bradlow has always got some crazy theory going on. So we wouldn't really <laughs> we wouldn't really take it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't think any less of you. But how do you like the matchup against Oregon? It's a 7-3 matchup. So I'm, I'm assuming that they'll be the underdog in that. Yeah, so that's the crazy thing. I, I like the matchup a lot more than the matchup against Louisville. 
Uh, I've actually been saying Oregon's been overrated this entire season. I still kind of hold, I still hold by that. Um, and but of course the markets have opened with Michigan as a favorite in this game, which is I that think right? Is insane. I, I think it's kind of insane. I think Michigan has a very good chance of winning this, but to make them the favorite is not what I, as a math person, would say about this game. Okay. So you know, if you if you manage to pull that game out and Purdue manages to knock off Kansas, we're looking at a, a big, ugly Big Ten basketball battle at the Elite Eight, Purdue and Michigan. Right. You know, the whole world. I think just it's less for that likely one. Purdue knocks off Kansas than yeah. Michigan knocks off. I don't know. Kansas uh, is one of these teams that you know, if we if we hold their history against them, they're always kind of underperforming. And the, them in Arizona, we have two chances for teams to 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 overcome their history of underperformance: Arizona and Kansas. Right. Um, well, and I think I. We'd throw Gonzaga in that boat, too. It's hard to say. Uh, that one feed. Well, but Gonzaga, come on. I mean, it's whenever you're Gonzaga, you're kind of given license to not make it all the way through, right? When you're a perennial one and two, like Kansas and Arizona are, not getting knocked out one or two rounds into the tournament, that's underperformance. And not getting the same gold chip players that uh, a Duke or yeah, Kentucky but, or Kansas. But, I mean, I've heard as much about Gonzaga underperforming in the tournament lately. I mean, they're, they're an elite program now. I mean, you got to call BS on people when they tell you that. Come on, man. We're, you've got to be a professional BS caller. Say, come on, man. No, underperformance. True, Let I me mean... tell you about underperformance. <laughs> Please right. do. do you, so you think Gonzaga, do you think Gonzaga's for real? I mean, the analysts seem to give it more credit than the public does. No, I mean, I think Gonzaga's for real. Both through my numbers, uh, team, ranking ha- team rankings have them first by, by a pretty decent margin still. And I think this team is very first, good from first, watching them play. First, sorry, in, first in their first you know, in the for, country. Yeah, do you mean first in the country first. or first in their in their bracket? No, 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 first in the nation. Oh, wow, wow. look at you, okay. Zaga, okay, as the top ranked team. Um, my numbers do. Ken Palm does. Um, Five thirty-eight so, does as well. They also have Gonzaga's right. highest probability of winning the yeah. tournament. All right. Well, there's yeah, more than I just mean, power ranks in the probability of winning the tournament, right? You might have an easy draw at this point. So, for example, they oh, only exactly. have Z- Xavier. Say, like part of. Part of the reason that they have the highest probability is because they have a region. Once they get past West Virginia, their probability to make the Final Four is going to be 60%, 70%, because um, numbers really don't like the other two teams on the other side of that bracket. Okay. But numbers um, do like West Virginia, right? They've been kind of a dark horse candidate from the beginning of the tournament. We were told early on to keep our eye on West Virginia because they're kind of built yep. for a tournament. Is that right? Well, <laughs> again, that depends on your view. I mean, some people would say this press Virginia team really likes to get in your face by far the best team in the nation at forcing turnovers. Um, some would say they're not built for the tournament because, um, you know, you can if you have a week to pre- prepare for that. Um, and, you know, they've had, some, they've had their tournament, lack of tournament successes. Obviously, that's a small sample size over the, the last couple of years. I think they, they lost in the round of 64 last year. So I think they're a good team. Uh, I've 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 liked them all year. I really like the way they share the ball on offense. I think they can actually be a very good offensive team at times. Okay. Um, but some of my bet- betting friends uh, are not in love with that team. So but that's uh, I, you know it's, it's kind of another interesting case too. That, I was, was going to say on uh, for West Virginia, one of the facts is so they've you know with Huggins and his defensive press, they've clearly created more challenges this year and be better teams than they have in the past. I think at one point they had eleven games where they they created the most turnovers ever against the other team and in, in that team's history so oh, this season. Jeez. They set records for eleven different teams of the most turnovers on those teams. That's that, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that's Bob Huggins, right? I mean, he he brings the intensity on every on defense on every team he's ever coached and I think you know we're seeing that you know he's got a group of kids that I think really buy into his system and um, you know as long as they can avoid long 
stretches of not scoring the ball. They are they're a very good team. I mean, so, I guess the counter argument on the turnover thing is that presume you know. Elite, other risk. elite team. Well, it's high risk, and other elite teams are the ones presumably most, pre- you know, that prepared are for that prepared kind of for that yeah. kind of strategy, right? right. So, Ed, sure, we, Ed, we know you're a college football think. guy. Is there any better kind of uh, co- coach combination, college football, college basketball combination, than Hogo and Huggins? I mean, is there anything even close? Those guys are oh, both Dan nuts, Hogan. right? Dana Horgerson and uh, yeah. Bob Huggins. I just can't believe those guys are the same at the same school. They, <laughs> I think, I think that's, I think that's Oliver Luck, the AD there. So he gets major props for bringing in both of those guys. That's an interesting combination. Anyway, lots of reasons to pull for West Virginia. the 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 game everyone's talking about is this UCLA Kentucky game, which is as right. blue blooded as it gets, especially for a um, for a Sweet Sixteen game. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Kentucky in that game. I think it's another one where it's crazy where you're making UCLA the favorite, a team that kind of doesn't play defense all the time. Um, I, there there are times in which UCLA just could care less to close out three-point shooters. I mean, um, come on, Southern California, laid back. Can they really be bothered? I mean, defense is like yeah. a hard yeah. thing to do. You gotta, it gotta, is. It's like it the is. NBA. That's a problem. That's a problem when you're uh, going up against when, Malik Monk and – Darren Fox. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I just think Kentucky plays really good defense. Like, obviously, UCLA is so explosive. I mean, they had a stretch against a very good Cincinnati defense and where Cincinnati just couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Alonzo Ball's a fantastic distributor. You know, obviously, UCLA can kind of do whatever they want at times offensively, but, you know, the matchup of how they go up against Kentucky's offense uh, – sorry, Kentucky's defense – which is which has been very good this year. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not as good as some of Cal's teams in the past, but but it's been very good. You know, can they slow down UCLA's offense? If they do, uh, they're gonna they're gonna win that game. So one last question before we step a little away from the details here: Can we just vote Baylor out of the tournament? Is that an option? I mean, if nobody wants them to succeed, can we just can we just make that happen? Why do you not like Baylor? Me? What's what, 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 what's the like anti-Baylor stance based on? Explain the, yourself. The, the, it's been a bit of a shit show down there lately, Shane. Come on. The university is not making good decisions around uh, oh. some of the issues they've had in the or, football program. Right, right. It, okay. It's so, so bad. It is you know. so bad, Shane. It's so bad that we have to pull against the basketball program. Okay. I'm just saying, okay. I'm just saying it out loud. Everyone else is thinking it. Come on. Agreed. I think we should be able to vote them out of the tournament. <laughs> right. I don't think that's so crazy. Well, we'll they, just advance. We'll give South Carolina you? a bye. They're playing oh. South Carolina. No, I, I, like think, South I think Carolina. we vote. You, I mean, if you're going to vote a team out, you're going to have to vote like an, the most popular team that in. You know, like well, who would South you vote Carolina in? deserves a buy because they did everyone a favor and knocked out Duke. And well, Grayson that, I mean, Allen. we can. We, you knock out Grayson I, Allen, you get even a buy. I can get behind Everybody that. Everybody wins. Everybody wins here. I think All this right. is reasonable. Okay, All right. And instead, I'm going to tell you that my numbers have Baylor as the highest probability to make the Final Four. Oh my God! I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, they're. They're rated below, slightly below Florida. I have Florida's better team, but uh, Baylor has a better draw because South Carolina's, you know, probably the weakest team remaining in this field. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, I'm going to become a real big. I don't want to really pull for Florida, but I'm going to pull for Wisconsin, and then Wisconsin is going to knock out Baylor, and we'll get rid of them one way or another. But anyway, I got friends from Baylor. I, you know, they're good people. There are some good people. <laughs> wow. It's not just about Texas. I mean, come on, come on. There's bad things that happen in college sports, but about 95% of them have happened in Waco, Texas in the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Ed, so Ed runs the power rank, uh, great analytics on both the football and college uh, basketball front. And he's got a new publication out, a little book 
to help you do well in your tournament. How to win your NCAA tournament pool. And um, where, can they, where can they pick this thing up, Ed? Yeah, you can pick it up uh, on my site. Uh, you can go to winpoolbook.com, and that'll take you to a page on my site, tell you exactly what you'll get in the book. Uh, you know, it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of analytics, and then it's a combination of strategy. So depending on your pool, you can't just pick the higher-ranked team in every, every game. You actually have to think a little bit right. about what others are doing in your pool. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a joy for me to write. Um, it's like a good practical, it's practical wisdom for people who even whether, you know, how seriously you take your pool, most people, it's just kind of a fun thing, but you still want some strategies and you, you hear these things, you might know a few things. Here's one handbook. You can come through, you can kind of thumb through and pick up some, some, some rules of thumb and some heuristics and some analytics on what might work. You do something in this, in this book that I don't think I'd seen before, which is you pit contrarian strategies against favorite strategies and then you vary that by the size of the pool so can you kind of mm-hmm. walk us through i mean broadly we kind of know look do i just go with chalk or do i pick upsets and and how should i think about that so i think you give people some good guidelines for how to think about that yeah absolutely and and you know i mean the kind of the strength of the book is that you know based on these public distributions that we have so you can go on espn and, and see who picks who in every single round uh, based on those distributions, like I actually give, you know, I actually calculate your win probability for a pool, assuming that you're picking a bracket from random, right. from, from an ESPN or Yahoo. And so, not only do you get a sense of when the favorites versus contrarian strategy works, and you know, uh, uh, contrarian strategies, you need them for bigger size pools. They're usually more than thirty, um, definitely more than like fifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it kind of depends on the year too. I shouldn't. There's there's no fast rules on that, and I talk about that. But it also gives you a good sense for the probability that you're going to win your pool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think in in a very good year, you're in a thirty person pool. You got like twenty twenty five percent chance of winning. How about so, pools, Ed? When, when you when you get yeah. multiple entries? Yes, so because that seems to be the most interesting. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, you know, I haven't done explicit calculations for that. Uh, I probably should. Just to get a good number on, you know, if I just, because I often think there's, um, you know, there's still, it's, it's, it's not like your probability, like if you're in a 50 person pool, it's not like your probability of picking all favorites goes to zero just because you're in a bigger pool, right? You still have a chance that, that you're going to win simply because, you know, what happens, you know, this happened for a guy last year. He was in an 80 person pool, picked all favorites. Uh, Nova ended up winning the tournament and no one in his pool had Nova. Yeah. So he ended up winning that pool based on, you know, kind of solid analytics in the in the first two rounds. And, um, you know, it's kind of been interesting for me to watch people. Um, you know, I've given a talk here at the Ross School, and I've had uh, given out some copies of the book to, to people that aren't really into sports analytics, and they get the contrarian thing, but they forget that whole thing about analytics. And so they're picking these wild upsets, you know, these yeah. wild contrarian picks. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you got to follow the numbers. you got to go to my site and make sure you get, like, a lot of points in those first 48 games that first weekend, right? Right. And uh, so that's something that I'm going to... Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that that really hits a chord with me because as a very casual basketball fan, of course I know. Everybody tells me, people tell me every year, oh, you got to pick some upsets. Because, you know, obviously, empirically, upsets occur every year, so you got to pick some upsets. And I always respond, yeah, but which ones? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you tell me which ones are going to be upsets, yeah, of course I'll pick them. Well, what I notice that people don't quite understand the difference is that there are about 25% of the of the games are upset, 
but only in the strictest sense. Right. Many of the games are practically toss-up, so when the team that's favored loses, it doesn't mean that much when it's a 65, or 35, or 55, 45 loss, but when it's 95-5, that's, those yeah. are ones you, want, you don't want to stick your foot in. Mm-hmm. And uh, those exactly. probably aren't the ones that win tournaments. The ones, are, the ones that win tournaments are the ones that are closer to the middle, but not quite, you know, not a toss-up. But I'm interested in the multiple strategy because the idea there is you're interested in trying to pick, uh, put in uh, entries that are negatively correlated in some sense. So yeah. if one path right. dies, the other one is alive. No, I mean that's that that's the kind of if if you were allowed unlimited entries, you could kind of well you know they you tend to cost money. Well, per right, entry. but 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 <laughs> at least theoretically, you could kind of you know because I'm you know again I I know there's going to be upsets. I don't know which ones. Well, you can kind of cover a yeah. whole that's know, right. set of upsets that way. But, but, I mean, a couple of things I would say there. So we need to just acknowledge that no one's going to have a perfect bracket. Mm. So, you know, like I, I really recommend picking the favorites in the earlier round for two reasons. I mean, one, you're not going to have a perfect bracket. Second, like it kind of just doesn't make sense on average to go away from what the numbers tell you. You know, like you're, you're kind of taking a risk there that probably is hurting your win probability a little bit. I mean, not a ton just because these, these games aren't worth too much. Like a round of 64 is worth one point. Round of 32 is worth two points. And then what my research really shows is that, you know, the things that affect your win probability are those late games, right? So picking the right champions, 32 points in most pools, that has a drastic effect on your win probability. Even changing kind of your Final Four and making Final Four contrarian picks, um, that has less of an effect. It actually doesn't really change the win probability much. It's kind of right on the, the border borderline. But you really kind of want to vary. If you're doing multiple brackets, my guess is that you want to kind of vary. You still want to think about the late tournament games that you're picking. That's the Just most important source so of variation. Right, 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 right. So we're talking to Ed Fang of the Power Rank, frequent guest of the program, does analytics in both basketball and football. What do you make of how kind of by the chalk the tournament has been so far? Some of it's been chalk, but also there haven't been the the buzzer beater kind of things. You know, There have been weekends in past right. tournaments where – Every other game, you know, the cutting away and showing you some great thing that's happening at the end of the game, a lot of excitement that seemed to be missing the first weekend. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I mean, clearly there weren't a lot of offsets Thursday and Friday, but you have 48 games. There's going to be exciting stuff that happens. You know, I mean, the Gonzaga and North Carolina round of 32 games, I mean, both those teams did not look good going down the stretch, and those were pretty close, exciting games. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, 99% of the college basketball population loved the Duke game where. They struggled against <laughs> South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I looked this up. South Carolina was 61st out of 68 teams in terms of offensive efficiency. Uh, and that's adjusted for schedule. They are not good putting the ball in the basket. They scored 88 points. But, wow. But they managed. I mean, mm-hmm. they they they, uh, they caught lightning in the bottle in that game and uh, really did well against that Duke team. I was, know, I was really uh, pulling for Rhode Island when they were leading for a long time over Oregon. I mean, it's been a while since Rhode Island made a good run in the tournament. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Oregon, obviously, they're missing one of their best players. So, you know, definitely a team that could potentially be vulnerable. Um, but then, you know, I mean, Xavier, you know, this is a team that's made half of the Sweet 16s over the last uh, decade. That's impressive. And they are, I mean, they're missing their top two point guards, I think. Oh, really? They, they oh, have serious injury issues. I mean, this happened a long time ago. So, you know, they were able to get through a pretty tough conference schedule. 
um, without those guys. The the South Carolina but, game is amazing that of the 16 wins, they had the third most points. So you're saying that they were terrible at offensive efficiency, and they had the third most points of the 16 teams remaining. In, in, the, in the tournament. Yep. They're on a good run offensively. What do you make of the of the ACC only putting one team in the Sweet 16? People have been kind of up in arms about this. The supposed best conference in the in the country. Yeah, I mean, small sample size, right? I mean, you're That's the right answer, right? I mean, we can read basically absolutely. nothing into that. It's this high, high-variance yeah. situation, and we really don't want to read much into how the first two rounds go. We're not going to judge yeah. a conference by how the first two rounds go, right? Yeah, I mean, Louisville met the hottest team in the nation in Michigan. Duke just didn't play defense, which we knew it was possible out of that team. Virginia, I don't know, they just kind of stuck up the joint. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more to say. Uh, Tony Bennett actually has not performed that well in the tournament compared to regular season expectations. Um, you know, we had kind of talked about coaching earlier, and I've actually done some work on this. Um, so you guys want to take a guess which coach outperforms regular season baseline expectation in terms of, you know, my actually, I mean, the, the metric is actually my team rankings, which is larger than victory. So you're, you're saying, you're, so you're going to you're gonna look at a bunch of years of tournament play and ask if, to, which coaches lead teams that outperform their regular season according to your power rankings? Yeah. So how many how many times do we need to observe them in, in postseason before we think we can say something about this? Well, that's up to you. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, I mean, you know, Coach K's had to You're looking at total expected so. point margin or what's your, what's your metric? Is yeah, it win, so win, wins, or, mean, wins or points or what? P-value, what do you got? Well, I mean, we can do all that, but, but the basic metric is points. Points. Um, so points. Okay. Total points? Team rank. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry. Margin of victory. So when you look at my ratings, like you just each team has a rating in my numbers, and you just subtract the ratings to get a predicted points. Can record. I still is, – so, is Brad Stevens in your data set? I was going to say Butler. Uh, he – you know, I got to check him. I didn't – I mean, I kind of put in top coaches just because those are the ones that matter. I, I did not put him. I, I will check, and I will get back to you guys. So, he, I mean, two, two final four runs out of Butler has to mm-hmm. be pretty far they above. They no business being there. And they right, they right, right, right. So what, yeah. what, what do your numbers show? Uh, what do you want to guess? I just did. Guess which, which, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You did. Um, so, most people would say Tom Izzo. Mm. I like, does, yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. And he actually does outperform uh, expectations. He does outperform regular season expectations. Um, but the highest one since 2002 is in Roy Williams. Really? Mm. That's crazy. I guess because yeah. UNC hasn't so, had hasn't yeah. had such impressive regular season. Teams. I would say yeah, he he didn't come to mind just because UNC always seems like kind of a yeah, you, power team to me, right? But maybe, I, I guess expectations, regular season expectations are right. still That's, low enough yeah. that he so yeah, after him. who's next on the list? So you said Tom Izzo's. Who else is near the top of the list? Yeah, so the the one the one that really sticks out to me is that is also up there. I mean, not at the Williams level, but Rick Pitino. Mm-hmm. Those teams have outperformed what they expected. And then, you know, Coach K is another answer I get quite a bit when I ask people this question, and his teams are basically right on what yeah, you right. Yeah. expect they really, in the regular season. They really do come in with high expectations. As a heuristic, you want to pick – this is where we went with the Brad Stevens guess. You want to, as a heuristic, you want to pick teams with low expectations just because, on average, you're going to have an easier time outperforming so, them. So, yeah, right. let me, let me – Statistically, you rank a bunch of of, uh, of coaches. You're going to get the one who's best and one who's worst. So, give me some flavor for this. Yeah, right? how do you how do you decide? what does it mean? Um, how much? How many? And what what's the what's the, I, I what's love this effect kind of, size. Well, you know, this. we do this in football too, Ed. Right? So, some you say you know we can judge the talent that comes into a program 
And, of course, the coach should get some credit for that. But let's set aside that right. credit for the second and ask how a team performs above the or below what you would expect right. given the talent that comes in. And so you get this residual, essentially. But you want to do it, and this is what Adi is putting us toward. We want to do this in some way where we can formally test whether these individual differences are reliable. Yeah, like given expectations going to the tournament, does it, like that coach add like, like yeah, it's an, extra it 10%, forecast? an extra 10% <laughs> <laughs> probability of making it to the Sweet 16 or something like that? That's right. the kind of I just want to know what the points want. are. I mean, if you're telling me, is it three points, four points? What's the margin? Yeah, so, so Roy Williams is, is, is 1.8 points better. But the, but the interesting thing is, like, they obviously had a very good run last year, right? And that margin came down from from what it was a season ago. Yeah. So last year, I mean, I did a T-test on it, and, you know, it was 99% sure that we could be sure that Roy Williams had outperformed his his regular season expectations. I, I, I love it. It's fun. I, I could, I'd want to do some kind of, like, hierarchical analysis to He's find out whether those it. random effects yeah. are, are reliable, right? Because then you could adjust no, for exactly. the sample size. Some you're, seeing, some you're seeing for three years, some you're seeing for 20 years, and that then you're going to shrink very differently depending on the sample that, you're, that you get for each coach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And your T-test definitely accounts for that. But I, and I definitely, I, I definitely think there's more analysis that could be done there. But I think the main thing is to say, like, you know, Roy Williams is not worth two points as a coach in the tournament. He may be worth a half point. He may be worth a point. Yeah. But but it's neat um, that your you know, analysis... And, and that doesn't... It's, I'm just, I'm just saying, that, that doesn't include... You know, he had a lot of failures at Kansas. So my data set doesn't include that, right? Right. So we need to we need to consider that as well, that, we, you know, we have an incomplete data set. Well, this is... But, um, it's, but, it's, but it's nice that it kind of captures people's sense of the best coaches out there, that they pop out of the data, but then you, you kind of sober people on the effect isn't as big as you think it is. But we see this in analytics yeah. all the time. You think... You know, this guy's the best quarterback in the league, and you're right, he's the best quarterback in the league, but when he goes out, it's not quite the disaster you think it's going to be because we overrate how big the impact is. Okay, let's jump. We have a phone call with a question for Ed. Jim from Houston, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for taking my call, guys. You bet. Hey, I've got a question. I've been watching a lot of basketball lately, and I've I've been looking for a model. I've been waiting for the TV to show it, and maybe you guys have seen something out there where they have mapped offensive side of the basketball court to show what the point value is from every point on the court you know they'll show where they shoot and make a shot or shoot and miss but i almost want to see hey for one step outside the three-point line the value of that shot is 1.4 or whatever that value like the expected points from like each point in the court yeah exactly right what's the expected point value could be for a player could be for a team and that could really you could see where people have high expected point values versus low. Yep. You could change your offense, your defense, based on what those are. Obviously, you'd expect around the basket to be very high point value versus um, – but, but, for example, I'm watching a game last night. A guy has a wide-open three from the corner, passes it up to take two steps inside and take a two-point shot. Yeah. What's, that was a mistake. Great. Jim, appreciate the question. Appreciate your listening. Let's let Ed take first crack at that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a good thing to do. Uh, Kirk Goldberry has done, you know, yeah. really nice work back at Grantland when it was alive, doing the same thing for NBA and actually looking at a player-by-player basis. Um, so, yeah, I, I think people have, I think it's the SportVU data. I know some programs have those cameras in their, um, in their stadiums now, and I think, you know, that'd be a great thing to do. I don't think it exists, but, you know, for sure, we know that uh, a two-point jump shot right inside the three-point arc is the worst expected value you can possibly get. Right. I mean, you need to avoid those shots. Um, you know, we're going to see that regular relationship that, like, your shooting percentage goes down as you get further away from the basket. You're going to have very efficient, you know, 
shooting right close to the basket. So I think all those things are going to hold, and you're going to see that in college basketball on average. Um, but yeah, obviously it would be a great thing to take a look at. I mean, I, I just I, I think it's intriguing for college basketball specifically because at least my 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 belief is that I mean, there's more variation in college basketball, both in terms of talent and in terms of strategy, than there is in the NBA. So I mean, we've got all these. Yep. Most of the analysis of this has been the NBA level, where all I mean, you know, there is certainly not parity, but mo- most teams are, are are relatively equal value, and so yes, of course, we get rid of the mid-range jumper because that's low expectation. But I would guess that you know, at, at the college level, you have enough variation in talent and strategy that maybe you would sort of see like more, you know, kind of like different strategies being. You know, right. That's a great having a, high expectation. It's a great point. I think that's why we do right. see teams like West Virginia with a very different right. full court press than anybody else is playing. Yeah. You don't see that kind of variation in the so NBA. So I, I guess I'm, I'm arguing that that same analysis that Goldsbury has done at the NBA level would be both more more difficult and more interesting at yeah, the college right. basketball that's level. Great. That's but great. speaking of the college, yeah. I mean, this is this is the Princeton. Years ago, for we, sure. during their break, right. we were talking with Dan about Princeton. They developed this three point or 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 layup. Strategy years before decades. anybody else was decades, decades before, yeah. and and we yeah. misinterpreted. I remember thinking about it though. That's their slow play. Remember that? Yep. No, that was, really wasn't it. Just it was it was ball. high expectation. Move the ball. Yeah. Wait until you got the right shot, rather than taking taking a weak one with low expectation. So Ed, we we need to free you up and and go to break, but we don't want to do that before getting some picks from you on how this tournament's going to play out over the next two weekends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, since the beginning of the tournament, I actually, you know, my number set Gonzaga is the, the the highest probability to win. I, I absolutely think they're a prime contender to win this tournament. I'm not backing off on that. Um, before the tournament, I also thought North Carolina was the most complete team and should probably have the highest chance to win. Uh, I'm still not backing off from that, even though they looked awful in the second half against Arkansas. Um, this North Carolina team is good. Uh, checks a lot of checks a lot of boxes. They're good on offense, good on defense have a lot of NBA talent on that team, okay. and the numbers like them. So, um, you know, if you put a gun to my head and ask me who's actually going to win this tournament, I would I would still go with the target. Okay, so Gonzaga over UNC in the semis, and then Gonzaga to take the whole thing. Um, good fun, good fun. We'll watch the guys from out west. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Ed Fang, appreciate Absolutely. you being with us. Good luck to you and the Michigan guys. Go blue, and uh, have fun with your rankings over the next two weekends. That was Ed Fang of the Power Rank. And uh, that's been three quarters of our show. We've got one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. But I'm only human after all. I'm only human after all. Don't put your blame on me. Don't put your blame on me. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Tatiana Zamis bringing us up from the bottom of the hour for the last quarter of the show. Under the tutelage of Deion Simpkins, of course, Matt Johnson as well. Matt's sitting back there waiting for your phone calls. Give him a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Open phones for the last half hour of the show. Just off the phone with Ed Fong. Ed Fang, I'm sorry, Ed Fang, our power rank guest from Ann Arbor, Michigan. In the studio this morning, Cade Massey here, joined by my buddies and frequent collaborators, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, the fourth of us, is out and about doing Eric Bradlow things. But we've got Dan Schwab in here as a guest co-host. Dan is a frequent friend of the program in here joining us. He's also 
I'm an alum of the school. He's on the undergraduate board here helping run the place. And he's guest lecturing in Eitan Green's class today on negotiation, MBA class. We'll talk a little negotiation later this afternoon with their MBAs. We've been talking NCAA with Ed for the last half hour. What about on the NBA side? And guys, I went to a game for the first time in a while. Sat and watched the Sixers and Celtics on Sunday. Nice. I was at that game too. Were you? I was. It was. I'm telling you what, there's something that feels right in this time of year anyway. It's something especially appealing about Sunday afternoon, early Sunday afternoon NBA. It felt like exactly the right place to be. I was sitting in decadent seats and drinking a beer at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon watching NBA, and I loved it. it was, I hadn't been there in a year or two, and it was a lot of fun. And it was a packed stadium for the Sixers, which was uh, nice well, to see. Well, tell me about that. So how many, do, you go to, do you go to a lot of games, and is that unusual? It was more crowded. I think it's because, to your point, it was a Sunday 1 o'clock game, right? It's mm-hmm. very difficult if you live in the suburbs to make a 7 p.m. game downtown and dealing mm-hmm. with the traffic yeah. and the Schuylkill. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the benefit of having the, those Sunday games. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they – they kept it close and in the end pulled this thing out. They knocked the Celtics off. Of course, the Celts were sitting Isaiah Thomas, which was a disappointment for me. I was looking forward to seeing this player we've been hearing so much about. They rested him as as teams were doing this time of year. But it was great fun. Um, and, you know, I, I've done this every now and then when I watch baseball for the first time in a long time. It feels like you get kind of a Martian perspective. Like you drop in on the game and all of a sudden you see things differently than you know, the last time you watched it. So in baseball, the last time I did this, for example, I, I was really struck by how when you're watching baseball, you're observing 100% of the action on the field at any given time. Like, you get to see everything, and that doesn't happen in any other sport, like especially football and hockey. Like, lots outside of your view is going on. That's kind of the Martian. That was my Martian perspective on baseball. That in, in basketball, it was I was trying to figure out how what I was reacting to, and I really wanted... I really wanted analytics. I would I, at the end of the game. I'm like, okay, but you know, how did both teams perform? Because both teams felt. I'm, Dan, you tell me. You sit through more of these games. They didn't feel like they were very efficient teams. Like both teams were going down and not getting anything out of their possession frequently. It was amazing how many times they went down and had poor shot selection or sloppy. Mm-hmm. T- just when you're watching it live and you're watching it more intimately than on TV, where you maybe you know cursory and you change channels. Right. It was amazing the the inefficiency sometimes you go down of how few times they got a high percentage shots. Yeah, so so instantly you want to know. Okay, they scored on whatever, 55% of their possessions, how does that fit in the distribution of NBA possessions? How does that fit in their possession, their distribution this season? You want that kind of sense because it felt inefficient. But then there are different kinds of ways of, of different ki- different ways of not scoring. So if the defense does something well, like block shots, and, and the Sixers did some, did some nice shot blocking, and that's not quite as, that's kind of credit to the defense as opposed to poor shot selection on the offense. So you'd like to break down the inefficiency in that way. I think it was typical. I looked up the stats, believe it or not, for that game because I saw something that it was one of the highest shooting percentage games for the season for them. And I walked away. I walked away. Oh, really? For yeah. the Sixers? Yeah. Wow. So tell me about Saric. So they, they had this Croatian player. And was this one of the picks that Hinkies made and then, and, and then tucked away in Europe for a little while? It is one of the guys that's part of the process, part right? The it's process. part of Embiid and Simmons. Um, and he's a complete player. Right? He played in the Rising Star games at the All-Star games. They People think very highly of him. He's you know not quite a Dirk, but he is a multi-dimensional player. Talking about hitting the uh, the jump shot, he's one of the, the European players, the only players today that seem like they can hit jump shots. The little right. mid-range stuff. Yep. Yeah. But you know what? That dude likes to put it up. Yeah. I mean, you better not pass him the ball if you want that ball to go anywhere else, right? So this is something I really wanted to know about. This is a stat that you should have on every player. I know we've seen it written up either on – it's not Grantland. What's the new Grantland? 
Well, like 538. No, no, no. The new Grant, oh. those guys started something else, and there's a writer there who did a great piece. We had him, the, the writer from Austin, Matt, that did the that did the, the point guard piece. Of, anyway, yeah. they did a stat where does the ball, where does the ball go after it gets to this guy? Yeah. Like, what's the percentage of times that it goes to... Is it to, an absorbing it, state? Yeah. No. And is Saric it, is an absorption state. Yeah. He really is. You give him the ball and it's going to go up. Well, some of the latest basketball analytics kind of track the expected value as you pass the ball around. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, again, like that that, that article where you, you referenced about point guards, that was a huge part of the point, because the point guard essentially like kind of runs the offense, at least initially, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so the extent to which they're making good decisions in terms of taking the shot or passing. Well, sorry, so, you tell me, Dan. You watch, you watch these guys, but you know, if you play pickup basketball, you know what it's like to play with a guy who just wants to score. And you can see, sorry, you can see it in his eyes, like he's hungry. He's hungry to put the ball yeah. up. You, you look at the person, you think that person's a chucker. He's yeah. getting it. He's going to the yeah. hole. It's. Uh, I also find it interesting this time of the year because it's you know March Madness really raises our our basketball fervor, right? We get excited, and then when it when it ends, you know, it's kind of that denouement. But we're excited because it's the NBA gets interesting at that point, and there's really the NBA really right. has become European soccer is historically more interesting at the bottom tier than the top because of the relegation, right? Okay. And the NBA because of the way the lottery works, I think there's a little bit of that as well because the Sixers want to win that game. Like Celtics are battling. Do they want to be the one or the two seed? Right? What is the benefit of being one or a two seed, right? Okay, okay. Um, and then you have the, the opposite. The Sixers, they're trying to say, all right, do we want to be a lottery pick? So it's you just see a lot of this this time of the year because the players want to perform and do well, but okay. the, the rankings are so critical. Okay. It's fun to watch those players. And the Celts, the Celts have all these, they're kind of this these misfit guys out there. All these guys are like differently sized than you'd expect them to be. So they're, they're – uh, who's the point guard? Isaiah from, oh, Thomas. Well, oh. he's a little guy, but he wasn't there. We didn't get to watch him. I would have loved to see him next to – Dennis their, Johnson? No, who's their stocky point guard from uh, Oklahoma City? I mean, the guy looks like a linebacker. They got multiple guys who could be linebackers in the NFL, and they're, they're oh. these beautiful basketball yeah, players. Yeah, the one I mean, really ridiculous. strong guy. Yeah, 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 there's a number of these guys on the team. And smart, they, smart. Smart. He's smart from yep. Oklahoma City. I mean, and he's. I mean, I love watching point guard anyway. And then here's this big guy playing point. You guard. know, pushing people into the lane. Yeah. And then they have the Gonzaga guy from Canada. There's a Canadian basketball player. Really? Yeah, the seven footer. You know, a Canadian invented basketball. He invented it in America, but it was a Canadian <laughs> guy he, that invented basketball. Really? Yeah. He's Nate Canadian. Smith? Yep. Wow. That's uh, that's good trivia. And Justin Bieber. That. Yeah, no, I mean, we've contributed to Celine Dion. I mean, you're welcome, America. You're welcome. So this Canadian Gonzaga fella, seven foot, seven foot taller than that, and he likes to, he he, he drove to the hoop some, he can dish, he threw up a three-pointer or two. I mean, this is an unusual guy. It is interesting how many of these seven footers you even see them beat out there that they'll take these three point shots. Like you, you know, it's a new game, right? I mean, they people value the long players who actually can shoot from out there. It seems. I mean, it's just I, I feel like the game has evolved quite a bit in a positive direction. For a long time, you know, we grew up on these great teams, but then it kind of degraded into this isolated play, and now we're back to seeing more beautiful basketball. It reminds me of the Celtics in the '80s with the beautiful, you know, the touch passes without dribbling, and mm-hmm. it was just it was beautiful to see. And I think Golden State and I think. Um, 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 San Antonio really revived that. That it, it got away from the Phil Jackson, the three man, the isolation, right? Yeah. But I think that's the part. It's more fun as a uh, spectator to see mm-hmm. that great mm-hmm. ball movement. Mm-hmm. Sarge had this had this look away uh, pass right in front of us, where you could you could literally see him look this way and feed it right between two guys under the basket. Just beautiful ball. He's a, he's I think he's a little maddening to watch, but he he was he was so successful that you can tell when he's good. 
he's going to be great to have on your team. He's he's an offensive asset. So I'm telling you, you heard it here first in uh, tw- 2019 or 2020, the Sixers are going to be in the NBA Finals. I'm telling Jeez. you, Simmons is the real deal. Embiid's going to be one of the top NBA players. But I think Simmons, is a he's a MVP potential. He is that kind of player. Wow. All right. So what else about the NBA has your eye right now? As you said, this is the time of year where it starts getting a little more interesting. Uh, the question really will be these teams, they're all resting up. So the Warriors last year were worried about regular season wins. This year, they don't care at all about it, right? They care They care about getting healthy, especially with Durant's injury. And, you know, are they aligned well for the playoffs? And what you see is a lot of jockeying for position, right? Do you want to be the one or the two seed? Is it important to them or is it irrelevant to them? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, having the, the seven-game series in the, in the Western Conference Finals at San Antonio or at uh, Golden State important to them? Um, so it's just you see a lot of you think uh, they're not thinking about these regular seasons. They're thinking about the postseason. They're not only point. thinking about the postseason. They're thinking about the semifinals yeah. of the postseason. The beginning right. of the postseason was so irrelevant. It's like a bye. Yeah. <laughs> so what what are the um, what are the Cavs' chances now after the injury that, that we thought they might have been competitive with the trade and then they lose the guy in the first two minutes he plays or whatever? Do we think they can make a serious run? I, the argument, the, Cavs? It, the argument yeah. is. Well, I mean, by serious run, you mean making it to the finals because they're pretty much guaranteed, right? Yeah, but by serious run, I mean can, can they compete? Can, can, can they compete with the with the winners or Golden State? Well, the argument is last year they couldn't, and then you had a confluence of events that changed the momentum. Right? They were down three one. They were there. Yeah. The championship was almost over. Dan, you just used momentum again. I know. I'm telling well, you, in sports, and it can mo- happen. I mean, I, I th- it turns out they have a pretty good player. Definitely exists in a seven game series. Yeah. Oh, I mean, come on, Shane. Definitely no, exists. Definitely. There's no definitely exists yeah. about it. So Just winning three games in a row. It's just there's, not, there's a lot of local non-stationarity, if you prefer that terminology to momentum, <laughs> if, which I if, think if you If you do. tell me it's something structural as opposed to psychological, I'll be much more sympathetic. I don't doubt that there's some psychological, but definitely exists psychological momentum in a seven-game series. No, I don't buy that at all. I think it boils I think down em- to uh, empirically we would we would probably refute that. You could you could for all the times you think now they have the momentum things turn around the other. No, direction. I think it's more like uh, I think it is more structural. There's structural. local non-stationarities like you know as, as as you battle over a couple games, you're figuring out what works or what doesn't, and it's sort of like you know right. both both teams are trying to adapt strategies simultaneously, and one team gets an edge, and that kind of you know for a couple games, and that's what we call momentum. Yeah, and somebody wait, gets wait. hurt. Someone gets yeah. hurt. The single best reason yep. for moment quote momentum yep. is injury. Yep. So that's just that's local station, non-stationary. So Wait. winning itself isn't enough to predict more winning. It has no. to be something else. Yeah, no. that's right. Yeah, Dan's gone quiet on us because Dan believes that. But we're we're, we're over. well. You'd argue we're that is, on is there more that. pressure on the team when they're up three one? Are they more pressure going into that fifth game than when all of a sudden they gave up two losses and now it's we're three all? We're essentially saying we don't think so. Yeah, we don't. We don't. We don't, we think don't so believe it. Right. I mean, so, I, or, or the fact that they've just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's less predicted that that psychological thing is far less important than the fact that they've, you know, the evidence that they've just lost the last couple games is is more evidence of some local non-stationary, some structural change. Right. right. Exactly. That they changed their yeah. offense. They yeah. Just... So I have heard, just flipping real quickly back to the NCAA's, where you might expect pressure to matter is when teams that aren't supposed to win are on the brink of winning. Yeah. So um, um, Brad Stevens coaching the Butler team through, he says it was a lot easier when they were underdogs to make these runs. As soon as you're the favorite, like Butler is this year, they've been playing the favorite so far. There's just a just a different. He said it's it's much harder wearing the home jersey mm-hmm. in the tournament mm-hmm. than the than the road jersey. Interesting. And, but I think th- I think you could look at you can find psychological studies that where pr- where pressure truly does degrade performances when you're kind of 
uh, you're ahead of the game essentially. So every uh, the distribution of possible outcomes is all loss. Yeah, basically. I think it's magnified yeah. because you're talking about 19 year olds and 20 year olds, and how many times have they been put in that exact circumstance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Versus an NBA player that maybe has had. You know, well, you wonder about that because because they also don't know what they don't know, and and sometimes they, like the yips in golf gets worse with age, mm-hmm. right? And so That's it's almost like, point. and you've it's got an, more an, failure basically when you're 19. Correlated. Jordan Spieth had never failed until you know two years ago at the Masters. Up until that point, he had never experienced it. But by the, when he's 30, he's going to have a, a memory of a lot of failures that he has to ma- manage in some way. So it's never been really clear to me on which way experience goes for for handling pressure. And it's almost inversely correlated though when you bring it up that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of are are you are you a golf fan? Dan, are you are you following? Do you play? Are you are you interested in the Masters? I mean Bradlow would have us talking about the Masters now even though we're still 2 weeks away. Uh, Masters could be the pinnacle of sports. I absolutely love watching have the Masters. Been to, have you been to the sports. I have, wow. Wow. I think it's as it's pure. It's great. I love it. I think What do you it, love so much about it? Um, the, just the fact that the for, ever since I was a kid, there was three minutes of commercial every hour, right? They they spend so much time talking about the scenery and the environment, uh, the history. That's the pinnacle of sports. Yeah, <laughs> the scenery and the environment. Oh, you're killing me. Oh my god! Well, you stepped in it. <laughs> uh, you must not be a good golfer. <laughs> I don't play. Oh, oh. <laughs> so you've been you've been to the tournament. I have been. Yes. What was that like for you? It's prettier than on TV. It's just so hard. It was saying something. Yeah, yeah wow. it, it literally is. You, you know, if I'm not a, a an avid golfer, right? But I like. But if you say what is the pinnacle, like, so if you say playing, you know, baseball, it's your dream being at Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah. If you think about, the, you've never been to a more beautiful spot. Yeah, if I if I had to play mm-hmm. one course, like you, one course, they walk down the last day Wednesday after the practice round. Thirty guys walk shoulder to shoulder down the fairway, picking up pine needles. It's that pristine. It's literally you've never seen <laughs> pine needles. Pine needles. Oh off my the gosh, fairway. that is crazy. Well, it, ha- it it benefits from that's the only major that has the same venue every year. So it's it's more closely tied and more mm-hmm. deeply embedded in mm-hmm. our psyche. Green and golf. Yeah. In yeah. Golf, in yeah. Golf. yeah. So who who are you? Who do you pull for? Who you, who do you think might have a good Masters? It'll be the first major of the year coming up in two weeks. I just like it to be close. If not, I, I don't have a you know. I was like many people that when Tiger Woods came along, he changed the game. It was fun. And after a while, when he went away, it dissipated, right? It wasn't quite as exciting. Yeah. I think today what you root for is having that stretch run, the back nine where there's at least two, if not three or four people battling. I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it exciting that you're sitting there and you can't have dinner on a Sunday night because you, you don't want to miss right there. Mm-hmm. That To me, that it's not a player. I mean, you'd love to see some of these guys do well. Sometimes you root for the underdog. Sometimes you root for like uh, Mickelson to make a run late in his career. In this case, I think there's a lot of exciting players, so you just want to make it make sure it's a good ending. All right, all right. Is it almost definitionally a good ending? Golf? No, um, no, no. no it can be. It can be blowouts. I, I mean, yeah. Well, it, 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 well, right. I mean, it, it's sometimes. I mean, occasionally even blowouts, like you know, Tiger Woods going in Pebble Beach up by twelve. That's kind of right. That but, was that was kind of that's considered so, a great ending yeah. just because of the novelty of that. But I mean, obviously. You What's know, the random of victory, r- typically. Random yeah, dude, time. like, winning by four shots where there's not really any drama on Sunday. Yeah, it can happen. It happens. It happens, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of times where the person wins by three strokes or four yeah. strokes in the last cup. You know, it's uh, anti Yeah, and you keep kind of yeah. waiting for something, like maybe a little mini implosion, mm. and it doesn't happen. And a you're Claude like, okay. Va- a Claude Vandeveld where you yeah. uh, triple bogey. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> well, great Nor- I grew up watching Great Norman implode at the Masters, man. That's that's good. That's good drama. Those are the two biggest meltdowns yeah. of the last, whatever, yeah. 30 years, probably. Yeah. So the world golf rankings right now, number one, DJ. 
So do you think Johnson's finally overcome his troubles with the greens, especially in high-pressure situations? We'll know, uh, we'll know in a week and yeah, a half. exactly. Rory, number two, Jason Day. He's been lingering, or he was one for a long time. Uh, Jason Day at three. Matsuyama, Matsuyama at four. Hendrick Stenson, didn't Hendrick win last year? He won the Masters last year, is that right? I don't know if it was the Masters. Um, no, that's right. Maybe it was British. Um, or the Open, as they say. Jordan Spieth, number six. Justin Thomas. Now we're going to start getting into people I don't know. Justin Thomas. Adam Scott, eight. Ricky Fowler, nine. Sergio Garcia. Still wow. kicking around, man. He's pushing 40. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Pushing 40. And he has, hasn't won a major. That guy's, been, on, a that major. Guy, that guy's been on the cusp for like 20 Five he got, years. He got, <laughs> seems like he, twenty he, years at least. He got rid of the wiggle, so yeah. he's, he's got a little bit better. He's been the he's been in the top ten the last number of tournaments. That guy, my god, and he's never won a majors. So no, Dan, no. I have a question for you. Oh. We we there's a topic that we always talk about when we talk about golf. How far do you have to go down before down the field before you get to fifty percent of the probability? So take the top two or three golfers. Do they have a fifty percent chance of winning? Five golfers, six golfers. How far do you have to go? What do you think? If I had to make a, a guess, I would That's say it's it, pro- it would probably be about seven golfers, seven or eight golfers. Mm-hmm. That's real close, right? Yeah. It's pretty close, yeah. Most people think it's it's uh, it's lower down the list. You, you don't have to go more than two or th- three or four. Before well, back, back, it's because, again, growing up in the Tiger Woods Tiger era, Woods era right? I mean, yeah. then, then, then it piles up a lot. You know, <laughs> then, then, you, then you, might, <laughs> you might just take him. He yeah. legitimately won a quarter of yeah. the tournaments, the majors, yeah. for a good few years there. Yeah. Um, Sergio Garcia reminds me of this. Back to NBA, the the, the Sixers have Sergio Rodriguez. This, yep, this, this Spanish, and he was so much fun to watch. It's, I don't. I wanted to know what his story was because he wasn't starting. He was rolling in as like the the second string point guard, but he seemed to have a better game, and he he heated up in the second half. He's got the beard. He's got the Spanish name. He's fun to watch. Why do guys look better when they have big beards in basketball? Like it, it's so it's far. Beards just different. look better, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, right. In all situations. No, the dude with the Celtics with the with the massive dreads was also a stud out there as well. A lot of watch. different hairdos. There was another yeah. guy that looked like a skateboarder with you know a headband on. And that was the Gonzaga guy. Yeah. It was a seven foot Canadian with the really really bad hair. It was an interesting game to watch. This is not exactly analytics, but. Uh, we've got exactly far afield from not analytics exactly here. This analytics? Hour. No, yeah, I guess this not. is the environment. I mean, the no. analytics do bear out that beards are awesome, but that's that's Tim the only Harden, analytic man. part. Are we talking about the Bachelor here? Gonna, yeah, you got analytics. the you got Harden on your team, so that's right. The, the, that's right. The, all, he's the all beard all star team. The Yankees okay. made their their new uh, young pitcher cut his hair. Well, did they? they are they did. still wow. doing that? That's they still so like eighteen hundreds, man. Oh, that sounds like a Red Sox fan that they made him shave when all the Red Sox fan of the long hair and the beard they had to shave when they moved to the Yankees yeah, yeah. yeah J- Johnny Damon Johnny Damon he had to cut the locks I can't believe still happening and Frozen Caveman Lawyer yeah no this he is was like great. the 50s this is like 50s Alabama football and we still like oh they're so like what a what a what a classy organization that they like <laughs> enforce these rules that were dated in 1920 <laughs> So anyway. uh, Shane, how do you feel? Guys, we, we're, <laughs> we're down to just the last couple of minutes. What are you most interested in over the next week of sports? What are you going to be paying attention to? Most excited about? Well, I mean, NCAA, the, I think. There's I the, think. the NCAA finals. There's yep. going to be the World Baseball Classic World final. Baseball Classic. One game. When is that? So Puerto Probably Rico, this weekend. Puerto Rico yep. and Japan. Yeah, no, Puerto Rico and the United today. States. Maddie, Maddie, Maddie J. Yeah. Telling, us, right. telling us today. Yeah. All right. Game is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan. Dan Schwab, thanks for being here. Friend of the program, been in here a few times as a guest co-host. 
He's a board member helping run the undergraduate program here at Warden. He's a guest lecturer today in Aton Green's MBA class on negotiation. What are you interested in most for the next week in sports? It's a great two weeks between the Masters, opening day of baseball, and March Madness. But you have to pick March Madness. There's nothing better than the next uh, two weeks. Who, who, who's, who's your, where's your soft spot for this thing? Where are you, who Michigan. Are you for? Michigan, really? Michigan. What's your connection to Michigan? Uh, my niece goes there. But on top of it, I love the Cinderella stories. I love the drama just because I'm going to argue with the statistical guys of momentum, the fact that they almost had the accident. Uh-huh. Um, and I think they, uh, they're they playing with uh, passion. And you know who knows how long it, it continues, but it's fun watching it so far. Are, are you a Michigan football fan, too? I am not. D- d- you're off the Harbaugh train? You're not? You're not. He pushes people off the train while it's moving fast, so <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> what about what do we expect from your Orioles this year? You get baseball season's about to kick off. Do they have any chance in that tough They have division? the best record in the last four years in the American League East. Mm-hmm. So they have the best record. They, they're very, they've been very consistently they have, competitive. They, they're still missing that number one pitcher to be a team that can – I think they'll make the postseason, whether it's a wild card. Um, I think they won't be able to make a run until they get a, a number one pitcher, and that's the big thing. I think the, the teams that are spending dollars – Having that shutdown pitcher, especially when you go into a five-game series or a one-game playoff, right, to make it, you have to have right. that A-plus right. starter. You want, you want uh, David Price from Manny Machado? We can make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> we can make the trades. That's great. Right here. Yeah. All right. Well, so that's been our show, guys. Thanks for being here. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Today has been Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, along with guest co-host in front of the program, Dan Schwab. Many thanks to our guest, Ed Fang. And uh, good wishes to his team, the Michigan Wolverines, as they roll into the Sweet 16. Also, the team apparently Dan will be pulling for. Good time in sports, guys. Lots going on. Hope you enjoy it. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.